And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jenks, your co-host. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Paul. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? How you doing? It's going good. Um, I had a I had a really nice uh, dinner before this, uh, so I'm feeling very well fed. I'm ready. I'm energetic. I'm what good to go. Huh? What did what you I have? have? I had an I had an omelet uh, that, that it, we made. But you said with dinner like, with like peppers. Um, but dinner and and some yeah, it was That's it was really good. Breakfast. Like a fancy omelet. And then I made a little potato and, and kind of like mixed the potato into. I like to put some potato in there. A little pepper. Just to taste. You know? why it was good. We, why don't we do a cooking show? Um, well, I, I'm not like a talented cook or anything by any means. But okay, decided to just kind of. Paul, clearly the cops have heard that you had breakfast for um, dinner and they're yeah, coming to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of illegal activity happening at this house so just uh it's finally all caught up to me i uh will be signing off here uh you'll have to do the episode without me tonight i'm sorry <laughs> all right that's okay because i think i'm actually going to be spoiled for co-hosts here paul uh because guess what what's that we have a guest that's mm-hmm. awesome who's our guest so our guest is Julianne Marie, who is a journalist whose words you can read in fangoria and bloody disgusting Julianne, how are you Hi, how are you? I did not have breakfast for dinner, but I am here. <laughs> it's okay. Thanks for having me. <laughs> the more I think about it, I kind of want an omelet now. It's like it's it's, it's nine p.m., but you know it doesn't it's sound like that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So Julianne, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show and for agreeing to uh, to chat some hammer with us. Now, can you tell uh, folks out there listening a bit about yourself? Yeah, I as as you said. I am a journalist. Um, I am. I, Hammer isn't my forte, and that's when you first asked me. I was like, Ugh. <laughs> I, I was nervous. So, but as you assured me, this is kind of this is an open for all all levels of of Hammer horror fandom. So, I I've only seen. I've really only seen a handful of movies, some of the Dracula movies. If you know, it's just it's not something that I really spend a lot of time on. It's my goal this year. So. This is a perfect excuse to watch something I've been wanting to watch for years. This is The Devil Rides Out. So thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you said that's a goal, like you're going to... Uh, yeah, yeah. So, nice, nice, nice. Yeah, so this is the perfect start. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'd recommend to Paul ages ago, but when you get around to the uh, Frankenstein cycle, that's pretty much my favorite. Like, I love Hammer, yeah. but uh-huh. my favorite Hammer, all of the Frankenstein stuff. So when you get really? to those, I, I hope you love them. Thank you. Good deal. Now, uh, as with every episode, we usually begin uh, with us, you know, basically chatting about recent watches. And then uh, now, Paul, if you want to go ahead and clue folks in, uh, we're going to have a second guest on here in about 15 minutes or so. Uh, Tell you what, we'll keep that a secret until they're here, but we're going to limit our recent watches to maybe just one apiece, and then then we'll invite on our second guest. But uh, Julianne, you're our guest. What have you seen recently that you would like to tell listeners about? Okay. Briefly, because it's the first weekend of May, today's May 3rd, um, I watched the quintessential May movies, and I'm not going to get too deep into it because they're basic movies, but (laughs) I watched The Wicker Man because May May Day. I watched May by Lucky McKee, and I watched Midsommar, the director's cut, because we don't mess with the actual cut, because that's for amateurs. But yeah, I watched your quintessential May movies this weekend, so that's what I've been watching. Those <laughs> are... And, uh, and May, yeah. 
That's an epic. That's an epic uh, trilogy of watches. I'm uh, I'm jealous I, I of that watch. Yeah. That sounds super fun. <laughs> but they're all they're all May theme, and I have to go with the theme. They are, and that's, yeah, so. that's great. <laughs> that's what I did. That is excellent. I'm glad that you're pushing the director's cut of Benzmar uh, too, because it is. Like, I love the theatrical cut. I saw the theatrical cut three times in theaters. Yeah. But when they, uh, I only got to see the director's cut once because they only had it for like a week. But when I saw it, I was like, how did I even like the original cut? I know. Oh, I, I, fun fact, um, Brad and John from BDS actually let me review it for them. And I, it was, I, I was, it was, I was so happy. Um, it, I had went to the premiere in New York and just it, like, the, the pacing of it and just it's it's so it's such a much better film and i'm like just let ari do whatever the hell he wants like just let him do it let him go because like he knows what he like, he like the movie is longer and yet it's better and it's better pace and just it's just a better film and yeah i i couldn't agree more i love the director's cut for sure there is something about his world building i swear like yeah. I watching it the third time the theatrical cut before we got the director's cut like i i felt like i was like you know I, I think I could maybe watch an eight-hour version of this and yeah. not be bored, even remotely. Yeah. You, 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 he makes movies that you would just want to live in, almost. Like, not maybe not, like, in the, with them, because it's too scary, but, like, yeah. on the outside, kind of watching them, <laughs> almost, like, peripheral. That's, it's, you're like, yeah, I, I could just watch these people just, like, people watching, almost, you know? Yeah, totally. Paul, how about you? Have you seen the director's cut yet? Uh, yeah, that's actually, so the only, no, that's not true. I saw the theatrical cut first and then I saw the director's cut is, I agree. It's easily my, my version, my preferred version of the movie. Um, I agree with everything that that y'all said. Like I saw the theatrical first and I was like, this is amazing. And then I saw that and I was like, what, how how is this more amazing? Mm -hmm. And, and the thing that impresses me most about it is, um, uh, what, what you kind of just mentioned is that the longer version feels shorter. Yeah. Like all of the character stuff that's added in makes the movie flow even better than it already does. Um, and just makes the time fly by. So it's, yeah, it's, it's easily uh, my, my favorite version. I'm excited for whatever Ari Aster does going forward. Pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same. I think he's brilliant. I, uh, Paul, how about you? What have you seen this past week? Um, well, I'm going to kind of do the thing I normally do and, and cheat a little bit. And even though I only get, even though I only get one pick, I'm going to do a trilogy for my one pick. Um, (laughs) and okay. So you might laugh at me when you hear this title, but I'm going for it and I'm going to defend it. So there's, there is a movie trilogy that was made for MTV in the late 2000s. Yeah. in like the early 2010s called my super psycho sweet 16. Oh my God. (laughs) Have, okay. So have either of you seen these movies? I have not. I, I have not, but for whatever reason, they're making the rounds recently on social media. So what's, what's the deal? Explain. Okay. So here's the thing. The reason they're making the rounds is because Sam Wyman went on, uh, screen drafts and like, made a case for this being like one of the best slashers of the 2000s like like top five is what he was kind of saying and i was like okay i gotta see this but they're very difficult to see you can only really see them if you go on to like itunes directly and buy them now granted the the purchase price is three dollars so it's it's pretty much like it's very inexpensive but um anyway 
they're okay so it's a slasher series it's based on the my super sweet 16 reality tv show but it's not tied to that it's just based on that idea of like a spoiled kid uh who's you know from a rich family that just gets whatever party they want um and then of course at this party uh, a slasher event happens what's really impressive about these movies um, is that they they build this really elaborate sort of backstory. It takes place at a skating rink, which I really love the setting. Um, and the skating rink was like basically really popular when all of these teenagers were really little kids. And then sort of the, there was a guy at the rink who kind of lost it and started like murdering teenagers. And he got, you know, arrested and killed or whatever. And then they shut the rink down. So now this girl for her sweet 16 wants to like, have her father reopen the skating rink, you know, kind of revamp it. And she thinks that'll just be really cool because it was something they all remember doing when they were kids. Um, and of course it turns out that the, I mean, I guess this is a little bit spoilery, but this is like the first 20 minutes of the movie. You know, the person who did all the killing isn't actually dead and is coming back and blah, 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 blah. What's really good about the movie is it builds it around sort of the, the final girl character, um, in a very interesting emotional way. Like they, they spend a lot of time developing sort of like her past and, and why this is tragic for her. And the movie tells you this straight away, but the killer was her father. So like Hmm. now she's kind of like this outcast at her high school because she's the daughter of a serial killer, but she's, you know, so she's trying to navigate these waters. Um, and, and, there there you have it and what i loved i gotta say i really really love the movie and the trilogy is great because it tells sort of one really big story over the course of several years um and i just could not believe this thing was made for freaking mtv um and it deals with all these really interesting thematics kind of dissecting what that sweet 16 show was like the idea of privilege and expectation um for a lot of these like wealthy kids uh and it and it actually does some really intelligent things uh and and it's also really bloody like for a movie that was made for tv and then i actually noticed that the cuts online that you you download are actually unrated and then i read up on it a bit and it turns out that yeah when when they shot the movie um, and it was directed by Jacob Gentry, uh, who did the signal. I don't know if any if you remember the signal. Um, yeah, the signal. yeah, he direct. That's what he. That's a, that's what he did before these three movies. He directed all three of these, huh. um, and they're really bloody and they go pretty far. The killer's really cool. It's creepy. I I mean, I gotta say, I was super impressed with these movies. It was like a like a slasher trilogy that I just can't believe somehow missed the overall zeitgeist. Um, so anyway, it, they're hard to watch. You, you have to get them on iTunes for the most part. I think that was the only place I found them streaming, but I really recommend checking them out. Interesting. Wow. I, yeah. uh, I just bought the first one, so <laughs> probably going to watch it later. I think, I think they're due for a renaissance. renaissance. I think it's time. I think my super psycho sweet 16 <laughs> is ready for the well, for the mainstream. <laughs> all it needs is like a scream factory or an arrow to put out a box set and then Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know uh what kind of relationship they have with like MTV Studios though. I don't know if those guys uh sub license their movies too often, but hey, anything is possible. 
Well, they should, damn it. And, you know, it's funny, like, there's that kind of stigma behind MTV. It's like, uh, you know, but at the same time, MTV has done so much great stuff, too. Like, uh, yeah. even going back to the mid-90s, like, one of my favorite MTV things ever was, uh, you know, Beavis and Butthead. Uh, but, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> have either of you ever seen The Max, based on the comic book? No, I haven't seen that. Uh-huh. Okay, so it was this cartoon series based on this really wild, weird indie comic book. Uh, it's called The Max, spelled with two X's at the end. It is this, I mean, it, it's a superhero comic, but it feels like a superhero comic by way of Alan Moore. But if Alan Moore had done a lot of drugs when he was like five years old, um, <laughs> which he might have, you know, that's not really a good description because I get that from Alan Moore sometimes too. Anyway. Um, no, the Max is amazing. It's it's the most bizarre, surreal, smart, edgy, downright horrifying superhero story I think ever committed to comics. So uh, if you don't want to check out the comics, I think the run, I think it's in trade paperbacks now, even then 20 some years on. But uh, there is a pretty great adaptation of the first year, maybe half of the comic book run uh, that was done in animated form for MTV back in the mid 90s. Uh, why they didn't continue on with it, I don't know. It's possible that they just didn't. It's possible nobody was watching, but uh, nevertheless, it is out on DVD now. And if you get the chance to check it out, it is just marvelous. So, uh, yeah, no, the Max is great. Um, I speaking of MTV, I did either of you ever see a cartoon back in the day called The Head? No. Apparently, I didn't watch any MTV cartoons because I don't even know what that is. <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to leave 90s MTV animated car- like uh, series in the past. I'm just going to move on. And I mean, I'm just hey, you say... can recommend it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not discouraging that. I just, I've just never heard of such no, a thing. The, the head is much more simple. It's just uh, the basic story is about a guy who uh, his, his cranium is inhabited by a tiny alien. Uh, and said tiny alien even though he's kind of a parasite and he's a kind of a wicked little guy he's got a great sense of humor and he kind of uh he helps the main guy out in a lot of areas in his life where he's kind of wanting in a way so it's kind of this buddy comedy between uh you know it's th- imagine the thing if it were more like friends if that makes any <laughs> okay. sense wow if you could imagine that, that is that's, that, that is, is quite, quite a claim my friend <laughs> So, and you know, even saying that out loud, I'm pretty certain it's not going to live up to the expectations that you probably have in your heads right now. But uh, nevertheless, totally worth checking out. I think it's on DVD too, but weirdly enough, I think uh, both cartoons, The Head and The Max, came out at roughly the same time. It's around the time that they were doing a lot of animation stuff, not just Beavis and Butthead, but like, uh, you know, Liquid Television and Flux, like all of that stuff. So, uh, but yeah, definitely, definitely worth checking out. Paul, it is 9.30. Uh, is our guest nearby, or do I have a minute to talk about Creep Show? Um, I, I, I sent him a DM to let me know when he was ready. I haven't gotten anything back yet, so I think you're probably good. All right. So my uh, choice this week, I've talked about the show before. I've talked about how much... Uh, it, it sort of won me over this season, but man, I, uh, I'm really digging creep show this season. Uh, season two, I think is better than season one in pretty much every way, but I got to say this last episode is kind of, um, it, it's super fun concept. You know, most of the episodes, they have that kind of anthology format with the TV show. Of course, they've been doing two stories each, right? And each are about, Let's say 22, 23 minutes, something like that. And uh, this last episode was directed by Greg Nicotero. It's called Night of the Living Late Show. 
great concept. They do some really fun stuff, and it stars Justin Long. It's the full length of the episode. So it's not an anthology like sort of piece of this episode. It's it's a full 44 minutes. And I gotta tell you, like if it had been 22 minutes, if it had had that kind of pace, I think it would have been so much better. I think as it is, it feel it drags a little bit. Uh, there's, uh, you know, some unnecessary beats in there that's just kind of bogs it down. But nevertheless, it is a lot of fun. Um, basically revolves around an inventor who creates a, uh, I think he calls it, it's a very William Castle um, via Black Mirror. But he creates something called the Immersipod. And the idea is, is that you can basically get inside of this pod. It's like a virtual reality system, but it beams you into your favorite films that you click through like you're, uh, you know, zipping through Netflix. And this guy is an old school horror fan. So the movie he chooses to go into is Horror Express, the Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing movie from the 70s. Ooh, I like that movie. Yes. Yeah. And so weirdly enough, though, like you would imagine the bulk of the story would revolve around him being stuck inside of this movie, right? Not at all. It's kind of like a relationship drama because his wife who's very wealthy, who sort of, uh, you know, staked his uh, his invention, as it were, and, you know, put money into it against her father's wishes, who thought that he was kind of a money grubber, as it were. Um, yeah. it, it, the bulk of the episode is basically kind of about the conflict between the two of them. And, um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's an interesting choice. They have a lot of fun uh, actually putting, oh... Um, Justin Wong into scenes of Horror Express and having him interact with uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and sort of bouncing around in the background. Like, that's kind of fun. And that's it's cool. book, yeah, it's bookended with, uh, you know, some really fun Night of the Living Dead stuff as well, uh, as though it's a virtual reality game, as it were. But overall, it, the episode just ran a little bit too long, but nevertheless, it's still a lot of fun. I still think it's better than a lot of the stuff that season one had to offer. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I still, I would give it a thumbs up and say that this season is great. I'm hoping they do many more seasons and they continue to just get, you know, better and better and better. Julianne, Paul, have you both caught Creepshow season two? And if so, what do you think? I have not. I watched a little bit of the first one. Wasn't really feeling it. The first season, I mean, wasn't really feeling it. And I didn't, I, I didn't come back. I've heard it's a lot better. So maybe I'll give it a shot. But yeah, it's, I just was like, eh, I just kind of fell off. But I'm, I'm open to trying to season two so yeah maybe yeah um similar experience for me uh season <laughs> one didn't really like wow me um but i appreciate that it exists um but i i did check out the first episode of season two which i think i talked about maybe like a week or two ago i can't remember now um and i did like it um so i i am looking forward to sort of checking out the season i just haven't it's like on my list but i haven't made yeah. time for it yet so I got to I got to jump on it. All right. Now, Paul, I uh, I believe we have another guest here with us. Is that right? We do. Um, yeah, we have a we have a full crowd tonight for for Hammer Pub. Um, we are being joined uh, by Joe Lipset, uh, who is uh, he's a writer. He's an awesome writer. One of my favorites for Blade Disgusting. You can uh, find him on Anatomy of a Scream and Grim Magazine. Um, and then, of course, he is a co-host of Horror Queers. Uh, for my money, one of the best horror podcasts around. Um, and I'm going to plug their Patreon real quick because I love all the stuff uh, y'all put on the Patreon. Your little mini episodes, um, diving into like you just did a mid-year horror wrap up, which I thought was really helpful because there's been like a glut of horror movies. And it's really hard to discern what to check out. 
Um, he's also on uh, the Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star podcast, which is sort of a young adult literature and their various uh, adaptations, uh, which is a fun podcast as well. So he is a uh, he's all over the place. Lots of great stuff uh, from him. And we're really lucky to have him on the show. Joe, welcome. Ah, thank you. That was a very lovely introduction. Very thorough. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'm I'm very happy to have you. So I wanted to make sure everyone knew where they could find all your awesome stuff. <laughs> and I will say, too, um, I believe if I heard this correctly, Joe, tell me if I'm wrong, but you had a hand in getting the podcast Is It Development Hell up and running. Um, I just listened to the newest episode uh, on Alien 5 and loved it. Um, I, uh, I was on that show a couple of weeks ago with Josh Corngut uh, talking about Army of Darkness 2, but I just listened to the Alien 5 and I would recommend that podcast to anybody out there. It's really fantastic. Yeah, it's actually part of, well, it it originated on the Anatomy of a Screen pod squad. And the whole idea behind that is that we work with enterprising people who have always wanted to start a podcast, but didn't really know how to, or they didn't, like, they needed some guidance. So the idea is people pitch their limited series, and then we help them. And in Josh's case, he was such a natural to it. He just took it like a bird to water. So he was like, I really want to develop this. And then he managed to get dreaded involved so he was like thanks i'm gonna go work with this like a giant <laughs> horror website and i'm so happy that he has found all of the success but he's yeah his podcast is great and the concept is killer yeah i love it, it it's one of my new favorites so uh that's fantastic and again the alien five episode i think is wonderful i uh the alien franchise is one of my favorites so just hearing i there was stuff that you guys talked about that i i had never heard before so listeners out there if you have not checked out development hell yet definitely make certain to do that uh, now, Joe, to catch you up a bit, um, would you like to choose a movie that you've uh, watched, say, in the last week to uh, chat about for a few minutes? Absolutely. So, folks, I'm bringing you a trashy comfort horror pick. And this is a recent film that came out on Netflix. It's called Things Seen and Heard. Or Things Heard and... No, Things Heard and Seen. There we go. I can remember film titles. <laughs> Uh, this is the latest kind of thriller, gently supernatural horror film. It stars Amanda Seyfried and James Norton. And it's set in 1990, but you would never know from watching the trailer. And the idea is that they are a young married couple with a little girl. They move to upstate New York so that he can get a job teaching art history at the college. And they move into this haunted house. And the premise seems... Like, okay, I know this film. It feels very familiar. It's very what lies beneath. You know, there's a gentle haunting, a little bit of seance, uh, some spiritualists who live in the outskirts of the area and so on. And the film is not doing anything remotely new. And that should be a problem, but it's so comforting to watch because you know every single plot beat and the actors are, like, alarmingly attractive. (laughs) So you're just watching these people go about doing everything expected. You can call the film like 10 beats ahead at every junction. And then you realize, oh, wow, this thing is two hours long. And you get to about the hour and a half mark and you think, okay, so we should be winding up. But you still got this extra act. And then the film goes completely off the fucking rails. (laughs) And you're just like, wait, what? No, that can't be right. You can't possibly think you're going to get away with this. And the movie just spins completely out of control. It's a disaster. And I also am encouraging everyone and their dog to watch it because it's, it's the kind of thing where you're just like, none of this should work. I should hate this movie. And yet I feel like everybody needs to watch it because you're going to be pleasantly surprised and then also hate it and want to recommend it to everyone else. 
That sounds amazing. I'm going to do a double oh, feature yeah. tonight. I'm super I guess. excited for that. <laughs> uh, I will say one thing right up top here too. I I am the worst host. I have done it again. Let me take two seconds here and say. Uh, Julianne, Joe, Joe, Julianne, do you two know one another? I'm sorry that I didn't introduce everybody right at the top here. So, um, Hey Joe, I mean, we're all bloody disgusting peeps, right? I mean, so yeah. <laughs> but I don't think we've ever directly interacted or. Yeah. Have, yeah. So. Yeah. Hey, I, um, wait, I have a question. Is this a Netflix original you, you said, or no, just on Netflix? It is a Netflix original. Yeah. It just uh, dropped last week. Yeah. Okay. That's never a good sign. <laughs> uh, they have a, a bit of a nasty track record it's true yeah yeah this sounds interesting okay i um did anybody like the babysitter films just oh, that's true that's true yeah mm, yeah that's fair other th- other than that that's that's maybe that's is that it <laughs> i think that might be it yeah okay. they're good when they do acquisitions but not when they have like paid their own money to yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of like the ritual. I don't think that was a Netflix original. No, they, but, like, it was yeah, acquired, acquired for Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I didn't I, think... I didn't hate uh Vampires versus the Bronx. I thought that was a fun one. <gasps> oh, that one. one's great. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a fun one. I've not even heard of that. I need to look that up. I uh oh, yeah, it was great. It's like the people into the stairs, but like in the two thousands. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. It's very fun. Triple feature tonight. Why even sleep <laughs> at this point, really? Uh, no, the only thing, you know, I, the only Netflix original that I remember just absolutely loving wasn't even the U.S. Netflix. It was, uh, and they canceled it. So, honestly, I, I, I have a bit of a bone to pick with them for it, but I absolutely love the uh, French show Marianne that they did, uh, uh, yes. which I thought was one of the great TV shows of the last God knows how many years. I still haven't seen that. Yeah, I've heard incredible things. It's it's so good. It's like watching... Uh, a fully formed like James Wan just break onto the scene. Like it's 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 no surprise that that guy was snapped up to do what is this feature that he's doing for Seth Rogen's company? Is it Cobweb or Cobweb something like that? But I I, I don't know. I just predict in like five years that guy's going to be huge. So uh, yeah, that that show is absolutely essential watching. I think. Well, I tell you what. So we have each chosen a movie to talk about at length. Tell you what. Let's go ahead and dive into our Hammer film proper now. Before we do that, Joe, I gotta ask, what is your relationship to Hammer horror? Are you uh, are you a super fan? Are you relatively new to Hammer? Somewhere in between? Yeah, I'm probably closer to a bit of a novice. So I have covered the Vampire Lovers on the Horror Course podcast, and then Trace and I, my my co-host, we wrote about Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And then I have a bit of a tangential awareness of some of their other output, but like you could probably quote a bunch of titles and I wouldn't know if you were making them up or if they were based on <laughs> gothic literature or if they were hammer classics. Yeah. Okay, so Hammer or Not, The Haunting of Frankenstein. Is that a real title or a fake one that I just made up five seconds ago? <laughs> I think that's a fake one, but there's definitely a bunch of actual Frankenstein movies. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's right. that's a game we should start playing. <laughs> you should absolutely like play that because the, they are a little bit rich and precious when it comes to their titles, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, my favorite is still my favorite movie. My favorite title is still Frankenstein Created Woman. So uh, yes, I I adore Hammer. I really do. Uh, yeah, Paul, that's an idea for a later episode. We need to just create a Hammer film uh, and do an entire commentary on it and see if any of our <laughs> listeners call us on it. <laughs> 
That's, uh, yes, I'll I'll write that down in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, tonight's feature is the Double Rides Out, which is uh, you know I'm curious to see what everybody thought about this movie as we dive into it. Now, listeners out there, if for whatever reason this is your first episode, here is how this works. Basically, pop in whatever media you have this on. I don't think it's streaming, weirdly enough, but uh, if you have the VHS or DVD or the nifty new Scream Factory Blu-ray, let's all cue it up to the very first frame, which is going to be... Okay, I have the subtitles on, so all I'm seeing is Regal Fanfare Music. Now, here in about five seconds, I'll do a countdown, and on play, we'll all press play, and then we'll go ahead and dive into this commentary together. Listeners at home, you are welcome to drink along with this commentary. Uh, you know, often it's encouraged. Uh, now, Julianne, Joe, I don't know if you all are going to be drinking along with. Uh, well, I say along with us. I'm teetotaling. I've teetotaled for the last two months. Paul, are you <laughs> drinking? Uh, are you drinking beer this time around, or no? I'm always drinking beer. Um, again, <laughs> it, it's it's just kind of a part of me at this point. I'm drinking Blue Moon Mango Wheat. That sounds terrible. Mm. Yeah, it's quite it's quite delicious. Actually, one day, Paul, one day, someday, I will find a beer that is suited for me. I've tried, but okay. um, I forgive you. It's ah, so it goes. Anyway, let's go ahead and do this countdown and dive into the double rides out. Everyone, let's go here in five, four, three, two, one and play. All right. And we have an astonishingly grainy 20th Century Fox yeah. <laughs> Good God. Now, can I ask Joe, Julianne, how are you watching this? Uh, DVD, Blu-ray? Blu-ray. I'm, yeah, Blu-ray. Welcome. Looks great. Okay, yeah. So it, I guess, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'm just, I'm super impressed because I definitely thought that it was going to show its age. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the coloring is great. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I got to give it the Scream Factory. They have done a bang-up job, uh, sort of restoring a lot of these titles, the, uh, the transfers, whether or not Paul, maybe you can tell me a bit about this. I'm not sure. Yeah. Does screen factory do the restorations themselves or have they been pulling from? um, It depends on the release and it depends on the studio they're going through because some of these are owned by Fox. Some of these are owned by universal. Um, and some of these are owned by paramount, um, with the Fox films, typically they are able to do new scans. Um, so this particular release is a new 2K scan of the um, inner positive. Um, in the other releases, they actually just use either whatever scan the studio has or they borrow the scan that Studio Canal did because most of these ha- had already been scanned in the UK in like, you know, about eight or nine years ago. Um, so some of those are being ported over. Um, but a lot of these, like this particular release, actually has both the new scan and the Studio Canal scan. And we'll probably get to this, but the Studio Canal scan actually has updated visual effects from 2012. They went in and like actually changed out some of the effects and put in digital effects, which I am not a fan of. Um, but it is something that is on this disc. <laughs> they George Lucas the Hammer film, you're talking uh, They sure did. They sure did. So... Uh... Yeah, that's, um, that's, but I mean, you know, there's there's some interesting things about the effects in this film because it was released without them being finished. <laughs> oh, but, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, that so, yeah, and and it gets a little bit like more obvious towards the end of the film. So I, you know, we can talk about more there. But there's actually one particular sequence where sort of the uh, you know the 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 hor- the death the horseman of death you know kind of rides in when they're in the protective circle and they cut to his face which is just mm-hmm. a skull and yeah. behind him is just a blue screen that was not supposed to be a blue screen 
<laughs> Is it no. weird that I took that yeah. as being kind of like a stylistic flourish, like a well, creep show, like splash panel, something like that's that? That's how a lot of people interpreted it. Like they actually figured, oh, well, that's probably just something that they're doing to be surrealist. And in all reality, it was just an unfinished effect um, because <laughs> the, the person that they hired, I mean, this gets into a little bit of the uh, the making of the film, but um, you know, the, the, the person who owned the rights for the film uh, pretty much only was willing to sign the rights over. His name was Michael Stainer Hitchens and his, he was an effects artist and he was not someone that hammer typically worked with, but his, the only way he would give them the rights was if they agreed to let him do the effects. Um, and they ended up having to call in sort of their people after the fact to try to fix a lot of what wasn't done when he was on the film. Oops. So there's some interesting stuff there. Yikes. Mm. Now, can I ask, uh, Julianne, Joe, was this the first time that you had seen this particular film? Yes. Yes, yes. for me, yeah. Okay, and can I ask, I mean, obviously we'll dive into it later on, your thoughts in detail, but overall, thumbs up, thumbs down, so-so? Yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. I, um, I, I mean, I'm into occult stuff. I, I, I do, sometimes it felt like a little bit slow to me at some points, but yeah, I think it's a great movie. I, I love Rosemary's Baby. It's my favorite movie of all time so it's kind of in that that period of time where it's like sat- satanic stuff which is like kind of oozing out but um i will we'll get into it more at the end i do wish it was a little bit more of a ballsy ending i would say but i guess for mm-hmm. the first time it was kind of like that's kind of the standard but yeah um i'm kind of in the same boat i i actually yeah. quite liked it i didn't know entirely what to expect so i found that there were a lot of times where i was not shocked but i was almost surprised at where it goes and the fact that this is very much like a country film like we're really not spending a lot of time in big cities or crowded places so there was something pastoral that i really appreciated about it and i feel like the film ultimately works a bit better in key sequences as opposed to a complete whole but yeah i think there's just something about the the ending where you're like oh okay we're really just gonna go the christianity saves the day angle okay that's fine yeah (laughs) yeah and and you're absolutely right and and that's very much indicative of like the director terrence fisher and his i mean personal beliefs um which Mm -hmm. come especially the more hammer you watch uh because fisher is sort of one of the big directors and he's one of my favorite uh horror directors in general um and he very much all of his films pretty much deal with the dichotomy between ultimate good, ultimate evil um, mm-hmm. and and the nature of the soul. And and generally uh, and he was a devout Christian. So this and this movie really uh, probably brings that to the forefront more than anything else he ever made. Um, and he very much wanted to tell a story of good triumphing over evil with no innuendo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly I do agree, like in retrospect and, and certainly all these years removed, it's far more interesting when there's ambiguity and a, a clouded nature to right and wrong, you know, in, in yeah. that respect. But um, it feels yeah, safe. No. It feels safe. Yeah. And I think that's it's kind of like the rest of the movie is like not totally safe and i'm like the ending's so safe and i just was like eh, you know which is so funny because when they first tried to make this movie in 1963 the bbfc's the british board of film censorship was like no 
this right. is this is against you know this right. is anti-religion this is anti-christian mm-hmm. and fisher was kind of like well well no we're we're using ultimate evil to prove the existence of ultimate good which which was a which was a thematic that went on to basically define hollywood over the next 10 years i mean look yeah. at the exorcist it's the same idea right. but obviously it's presented in a much different way um, and you mentioned Rosemary's Baby, which uses very similar thematics. So it's it's fascinating that, you know, they they viewed it in that light, given how clearly in support of Christianity it is. Mm-hmm. But also they make Satanism look really sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Well, it, and this. Oh, I'm um, sorry. No, it kind of reminds me of all the colors in the dark which is like that very like sexual like it's like yeah like mm-hmm. it's like seductive almost you know it's like that it's like yeah. everyone's just yeah, come on in the cult and i'm like yeah maybe you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. well and this came out one year before or no i'm sorry one year after the bbfc turned it down in 63 roger corman's the mask of red death came out which is very similar you know it's it's a big it has a lot of like giant cultish sort of gatherings and kind of deals with some similar thematics and it was a, a very big success and, and kind of paved the way for this movie to finally be able to be made. But you're right. It, it definitely embodies a lot of those things that we would see in other films. Yeah. Paul, and, you and I have talked a lot about Terrence Fisher on this show before. And, you know, it's funny in doing a little bit of research for this talk, a lot of people seem to hold this movie up as being one of his best. And, uh, you know, if, if I can guess from the conversation that I've heard so far, I'm guessing that, Maybe not all of us here would agree with that necessarily. I, I agree with Julianne. I agree with Joe that it's not – there's something about this story. There's something about Fisher's sort of measured direction, I think, which is which is perfectly suited for big period gothic melodramas, you know. But it's – to me, his direction is mismatched with this story, I think. You know, this uh, this tale of a cult and an almost uh, – you know, at times there's kind of like this race against time factor and – to me, it needed direction that seemed maybe a little more immediate, you know, maybe a bit more dangerous. And, uh, you know, Julianne, I think you pointed it out, too. But, I mean, to me, the film really sort of drags at times when it should be yeah. just absolutely racing. This is only a 90-minute film, and yet, you know... It feels it, two it, hours at times. It's, <laughs> it absolutely does. It's a slog at times. Yeah. Well, But it's just I, weird because I, Terrence Fisher, so, I think, you know, Paul and I have held him up as being you know, one of the great Hammer directors, if not the greatest of all of them. And to see people sort of hold this up as one of his very best, I just, I can't agree with that. I think, I hate to say it, and not that I think it's a bad film. I don't think it's a bad film, but this might be, if not a lesser effort, I it might be his worst film that I've seen. Really? Really? I don't know. Again, again, I, I wouldn't not say saying, it's his worst film. Not I, saying, worst, worst I appreciate that it's opinion. bad. It's not bad. Yeah, but right. okay. Name name another Terrence Fisher movie that you think it's uh, worse than this. You know, like it's I I can't. Well, and I think what we're all getting at too, because this was also a movie written. This was the only Hammered movie um, written by Matheson. Yeah. Right. And and it's he basically condensed this novel that had he actually condensed it pretty pretty well. I actually. I believe like, and, and, but it's very dialogue heavy. It's, mm-hmm. it's large expository blocks of dialogue from Christopher Lee telling everyone around him what's happening and how they should feel. Yeah. And, 
and and the good part about it is Christopher Lee is talented enough and so hungry for a protagonist. <laughs> yes. Because you can yeah. tell this is a guy who's like always been the villain. Right. Typically kind of shuffled off to the side, even in the Dracula films, he's not in them a lot, you know, like he's the quote unquote star of those movies, but he gets like 12 minutes of screen time, you know, in, in a lot of them. So this is the first time Hammer actually gave him a shot at something that they normally would have given to like Peter Cushing um, and or Andre Morel or something. And and so it was it was cool. It's kind of interesting to see him in that role and he does a good job, but there's only so much that much dialogue can really carry a movie, you know, eventually it has to be action. And when this movie goes to action, it's entertaining, but in general, it, it definitely has that Richard Matheson sort of flavor to it where it's very wordy, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and I, I like it, but I do think that it, it hurts the movie in comparison to a lot of the other films hammer was doing, which was much more based on atmosphere than it was right. on large blocks of text. I mean, I think between Christopher Lee and Charles Gray, this movie, I think would probably be a slog without the two of them. You know, they're, they're, oh like, they, gosh, they make yes. the movie, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, you're just kind of like, okay, without these guys, like this movie would be such a drag. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, go ahead. Oh no, you're fine. I, and it's well made. I mean, it, yeah. it, there's no yes. denying that yeah. like, it's very beautifully composed. It's very beautifully yeah. shot. Bernard Robinson's set design's great. Um, the score is really great. Like there's, there's a lot of positives to the film. And I think it, it also utilized like all of hammers, heavy hitters, like all of their big famous people in the various departments all worked on this movie. And it's kind of one of the last, dare I say it, prestige movies they made, you know, after this, it it was kind of downhill until they shut their doors. Well, I wonder if that's one of the reasons why we're maybe being a little more critical of it is that it does have the air of a kind of stately affair, Mm -hmm. but there's like, especially as a bit of a a hammer novice, I came into this being like, all right, we're going to get some bodice ripping. It's going to (laughs) be, you know, really atmospheric. Yeah, you're right, Paul. That's kind of what I associate with it. Like I thought there'd be lots of mist and I thought that there would be (laughs) more sacrifice and that kind of stuff. So when it is, almost more parlor room it's a bit like a play in a lot of ways and it's not bad but i do think you have to adjust your expectations as a result right yeah i agree you know it is weird that richard madison did write this paul i think you're right it is very wordy in a way that his stuff could be but at the same time you know madison when he was at his best like his stuff felt you know, kind of dangerous, even his best, uh, you know, Twilight Zone episodes, you look at something like uh, Nightmare at 40,000 Feet or um, uh, like The Howling Man, you know, uh, those are primarily just, you know, those could very well be plays. And yet at the same time, there was a bit of danger to them in a way that, you know, this movie doesn't really convey often enough. And I don't know that I lay that entirely at Matheson's feet or Fisher's, but it's, it's in the way that it probably should the most, it doesn't quite work for me. Well, I also think it goes away from what Matheson originally intended the script to be. Well, I mean, first off, it wasn't originally written by Matheson. It was written by John Hunter, who wrote Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. And then Anthony Hines read the script and he goes, oh, this is, quote, too British. So I need to hire an American. And so they hired Matheson, who they almost worked with in 1958 for they were going to make an I Am Legend movie. Uh, Hammer was going to do it. And then that fell apart. 
for various reasons. Uh, and it was actually, out. funny enough, was going to be called Night Creatures, which they ended up calling uh, a different movie, Captain mm-hmm. Clegg in America. So all kinds of weird ties. But uh, yeah, anyway, so Richard Matheson's original script after the John Hunter script featured uh, like that scene where, <laughs> where I guess we're jumping around the movie a little bit. But like when we see the cult sort of gathering and then we see the 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 goat of Mendes, mm. um, they were all supposed to get naked and have an orgy in that of script. Course. Like. And I'm like, first off, did you really think that they were ever going to make that happen? But, but that was we're going to sneak Madison. this by the British censors, right? Yeah, right. Paul Hope I mean, Springs but, Eternal. Like, come yeah, on. No, I get it. I mean, you, you gotta you gotta shoot your shot. Like, if you if you're Richard Madison, literally, it's like I'm going in the orgy. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but I mean, when you when you think about the edginess that was in that original script, like I think that would have maybe made some of the large blocks of exposition more palatable because you do right. get insane over the top stuff juxtaposed against it whereas instead we get fisher's vision of it which is far more reserved which works in a movie like phantom of the opera or curse of the werewolf but it doesn't really work here where the where it's just so overtly christian themed you know it 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 becomes a little preachy at times it needed john gilling oh i'm sorry no 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 I, i was gonna say i do wonder had this been made like maybe like eight years after in the seventies. Like I'm wondering like how different it would have been. You know what I mean? It's like a little bit more ballsier. I'm I'm very curious if they would have waited just a little bit longer till things were a little bit more brazen, you know, like I'm very curious about that. It's funny. You mentioned that because in 1976, they did another, um, uh, version of a Dennis Wheatley novel, which was too Um, brazen, too brazen. And they, and they did To the Devil a Daughter, which was written by the same guy who wrote The Devil Rides Out. And okay. to your point, it goes in a very, like, raunchy, over-the-top, uh, yeah. sort of 70s grindhouse version of this. And it, yeah. it doesn't really work. But okay. it is <laughs> so funny that they, it never would have worked. It, it Right. Well, and also that movie was, like, really thrown together and has a lot of other problems and some and something in it that's, like, incredibly questionable and bad and it's sad that it's in the movie uh yeah we have to go go into that but um but uh uh but yeah i mean the dennis wheatley stuff these are novels from the from the 30s like the devil rides out was written in 1934 um and has anyone read it or anything anyone here read it I haven't. I did a little reading on the background of them. It was kind of neat. You know, Paul, you mentioned about Christopher Lee being hungry for a protagonist role. Like to me, when I watch this movie, it, it's easy to imagine like a series of Duke de Richelieu and Rex buddy, you know. Uh, oh, just say it. They're lovers. Come on. You know. Well, yeah, well, totally. Well, I mean, that definitely, you know, could be that. But you imagine Unquestionably, them like, in a series. Yeah, I agree. Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you could imagine them in a series of adventures. And I thought, you know, how great would it have been if Lee could have had like a film series where he played a hero? And mm-hmm. weirdly enough, looking into the background, it turns out that, yeah, Duke the Richelieu was and Rex and Simon Aaron and um, uh, all the other guys at Eaton. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them were figures in numerous Dennis Wheatley novels. I think there are something like yeah. 11 books that fe- feature the characters. And what's crazy about it is you would imagine, you know, especially with you know, uh, uh, novel series the way they are today with the, the sort of lead protagonists, they sort of stay in that one lane. And what's kind of neat about Wheatley is that, you know, he took his characters and sometimes he would throw them into a double rides out where, you know, uh, uh, Satanists and the supernatural are afoot. Sometimes he would throw them into tales of espionage that weren't probably too far astray from like a James Bond adventure, you know? And, uh, 
I just I think that's so cool. And what's great is he actually followed the characters from a relatively young age through until pretty much their final adventure. And I just wish that Lee could have gotten the opportunity to play this character as often as he did Dracula, which, you know, by all accounts is a character that he did not want to play that often, Mm -hmm. really that much at all. Well, weren't there two anticipated sequels to this, but then they were canceled after the film underperformed? Ooh, yeah. I didn't know that. It, yes. No, you're absolutely right, Joe. And and the funny thing was they expected this movie to be huge. Like you like that's why they planned yeah. sequels, is they thought this was gonna be the thing that sort of like kind of like Curse of Frankenstein did in fifty seven, like catapult them back into the stratosphere. And it did really well in the UK, but it didn't perform in the US, which is really where it needed to. That's that's where the money was. And right. actually by and large, this was the movie that kind of lost them American financing and distribution because when this underperformed for Fox, Fox was a lot like was kind of uninterested in further projects. You know, they had to finish out their contract, but this this sort of led to the disrepair of Hammer. And um, it, it's it is sad that we didn't get to see more. The funny, the, another interesting thing about that though is that Lee was set to remake this in the oh, really? like. Right before he died. Yeah. And like there's a on the commentary, he recorded a commentary for this movie in like 2010, I want to say. Um, and in it, he talks about how they're tr- they're thinking about starting production the next year. Like he literally is like talks about the pre-production work they were doing and how he was really excited to play the character at the proper age. He was like, I'm finally the right age to play this guy. That's why I want to remake it. And I think, you know, we've come so far and I feel like we could do some really interesting things with the effects now and like bring into, and I'm like, man, I would have loved to see a 2011 (laughs) devils ride out with freaking Christopher (laughs) Lee again. That would have been something. Especially with the updated special effects, right? Right. Right. That's, that's definitely right. a glaring issue here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, the effects are, are rough. <laughs> Which is oh, come on. We love that spider, don't we? I do. I oh, well, I do kind of love the spider. I do. <laughs> I mean, in a in a you know in a charming sort of way. Uh, but sure. you can tell this movie definitely suffers. Um, the one thing I guess we'll probably get there, but I do like the goat of Mendes. I think that's pretty cool. Yes. Um, yeah, but that wasn't Stainer Hitchens. That was, um, oh gosh, they got uh, Roy Ashton to come back and do that uncredited, uh, who did some of their best makeup. So it was like they just pretty much called him in and had him do one thing for them uh, in this case. But yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting amalgam of, of what Hammer's sort of known for. And it does feel like sort of a, a dying cry to call back to their golden age. And, and, mm-hmm. and sort of reclaim that in a way. Well, kind of doing something entirely new at the same time, too. Like, I, aside from the witches, had they really dabbled that much in Satanism and cults up until this point? Like, it feels... Uh, Kiss of the Vampire dealt with cults. I mean, yeah. I think that yeah. was really where the, they first started going in that direction. And it was because they went with somebody who wasn't in their stable. That was when they moved away from Fisher. Because Fisher wasn't really interested in the occult. You know, again, he was a Christian guy. He didn't want to delve into these waters. Um, And so they had to kind of go outside of their normal director stable and get people who were willing to kind of go into the more murky waters of of the morally ambiguous in the occult. Um, And then Fisher, this wasn't a movie Fisher signed up for. They they basically gate like they said, you're going to, you know, he agreed to do three movies for them. And this was one of the ones they assigned to him. Because they just thought it matched up to his sensibilities. 
Um, mm. So unlike some of those other films, this wasn't something he actively sought out to direct also. Mm. So, Paul, this would uh, be at odds with Terrence Fisher being an auteur then. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yes, I guess so. <laughs> but it does fit into his milieu. <laughs> it's funny, uh, though, because we don't I mean, obviously, it's a it would be unorthodox nowadays to hear about a director saying, oh, I'm not going to make a scary movie because it goes against my religious values. Like mm -hmm. that's just a story we don't tend to hear unless we're talking about like a Kirk Cameron left behind nonsense. <laughs> Apologies <laughs> to anybody who likes those movies. No. Yeah, I agree. Well, and like there's some famous stuff with like, um, you know, Brides of Dracula was originally supposed to end with um, Van Helsing, the Peter Cushing character, calling upon the dark arts to defeat mm. the vampire and both Cushing and Terrence Fisher were like, like after the movie started shooting and they were, they were planning this stuff. They're like, we're not doing that. <laughs> they're like, we're not going <laughs> to shoot that scene and you're going to have to rewrite the ending or you're not going to have an ending. And I'm, I, I find that really interesting. Like you just said that I can't imagine a director doing that now, like halfway through filming being like, we're not shooting that ending, right? Rewrite mm -hmm. it. This is against what I believe. And also again, I mean, to Cushing's point against what the character would do. So I think like on the one hand, you are backing sort of what the movies have established a certain character is capable of. But on the other hand, it, it just doesn't, gel with what he thinks is the righteous thing um right. so it, it is interesting that he carried that through a lot of his films um even when he was dealing with sort of the black arts and whatnot is that kind of a testament to the power that hammer had as a bit of a studio like a with a stable director roster as well as actor list like they they cultivated this but then it also meant that they were beholden to it that when they hired these people for these projects, they were kind of like they gave them that sort of power to then use as leverage. Yes. Um, I think I, I do agree. I think like the interesting thing about hammer as a studio is it really was like a, a stable of players. Um, mm -hmm. and a lot of the same names just keep coming up and it was always notable when somebody came in, be it an actor or some director or creative of some kind that wasn't a part of that group. And those movies often kickstarted a, a pretty big change in the direction of where the studio went. Um, and I do think there were pros and cons to that, you know, like, uh, and, and a lot of those people, the funny thing is at the time, a lot of them felt boxed into it. Like, you know, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee felt a bit trapped, mm -hmm. uh, inside of hammer films, even though, you know, we all look back on them now and, and sort of, that's what they're beloved for. I mean, amongst other things, but at the time it was, oh, well, I'm, I'm sort of stuck doing this. And same with Terrence Fisher. Terrence Fisher was a, was a history director well before he ever made a hammer movie. Um, he had been making all every genre of film. Um, but then he directed the curse of Frankenstein and Dracula back to back. <laughs> and those essentially put hammer on the map and hammer had been operational since the late forties. So it wasn't like they were a new studio, you know, they had been around, but they hadn't been who they were. And then once those movies came out, they got the attention of Fox and they suddenly had this big American distribution deal and they could, they could kind of do whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, and suddenly every movie, like the first, like five or six movies in a, in about a five, six year period are all Terrence Fisher. Um, like all of their big movies, the mummy is Terrence Fisher, the two faces of Dr. Jekyll, Terrence Fisher, 
Phantom of the Opera, Terrence Fisher. It's like they just kept hiring the same guy. And the movies are all great, but they progressively did worse and worse and worse. Until Fan of the Opera was essentially this huge prestige movie that just basically bombed. And they had to go in a different direction and start hiring other directors. Um, right. And that's when the studio got its second wind. Um, and, and Fisher really didn't return, I guess, until, gosh, what was it, Jinx? Like the Gorgon or Dracula, Prince of Darkness? Like, was that kind of when he sort of made uh... his rise? Yeah, Prince of Darkness, I think. Prince of Darkness, yeah, and then that sort of reinvigorated the Dracula movies because Christopher Lee finally came back. Anyway, not to get on this crazy history of Hammer kick, but (laughs) it it is interesting though. Like when you look at that, like that they are intrinsically tied. The the careers of these these directors and actors are intrinsically tied to Hammer and its overall success or lack of success. This uh, this car chase. I think is kind of a fun thing in the middle of the movie that feels a bit out of place though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, for sure. Definitely out of place in the movie. I wonder if it's something that comes directly from Wheatley's novel, given that he sort of, you know, dipped his toe into adventure, you know, from time to time as well. Um, You know, I haven't read the book. I'm kind of interested in checking them out now simply because I'm wondering where else those characters went. Um, Plus, I've never, I, I, I'm ashamed to admit, apparently as big an author as he was way back in the day, and he was apparently huge, Dennis Wheatley, I haven't read any of his stuff. I haven't read uh, any of the stuff that Hammer worked on. I haven't read any of the novels outside of that. But apparently they got some reprints, uh, I want to say five or six years ago, that are fairly easily tracked down. But uh, hmm. I don't know. I, I, the only thing I really know about Dennis Wheatley outside of the movies that I've seen based on, you know, upon his works um, there was this great book that came out in the mid nineties called, um, Oh, the art of horror. I think uh, it was Clive Barker's a to Z of horror rather. And, uh, there was an article on Dennis Wheatley, like this piece of the book that was devoted to him. And they talked about, you know, his work obviously, but also his work ethic and this idea that he would, uh, apparently he was a procrastinator and, uh, he would not write until the last minute. And then sometimes he was given deadlines that he, you know, no mortal man should be able to meet. And they told the story once, I don't know if it was this or to the devil, a daughter, but the story goes is that his deadline was on a Tuesday and he hadn't started writing by the weekend before. So he walked, he walked into his study on a Friday with four cartons of cigarettes and two magnums of champagne. And he locked himself <laughs> in and he walked out on Monday unshaven, uh, in terrible shape, but he had a completed manuscript, which was then published wow. uh, pretty much as is no rewriting or anything. And it's just like, that's I, where is that biopic? Where was like that before once or twice, you know, <laughs> <laughs> everyone that writes has kind of been there. right? <laughs> but also we'd like to then go on Twitter and complain about it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, if you're not on Twitter, you really are right now. I'm just kidding. Um, but that's awesome. There's a really great feature for anyone that has the Blu-ray. Uh, there's a 13 yeah. minute feature, uh, Dennis Wheatley at hammer, uh, from biographer, Phil Baker, who just kind of runs through a brief history of Dennis Wheatley's career, uh, kind of what he did, and then the three movies that Hammer made about him. It's it's kind of a cool, like, short uh, rundown of of kind of all you'd need to know. But, yeah, he did sound like a really interesting guy. And he believed in the stuff he wrote about. Like, he believed oh, in yes. the black arts. Like, and, and, that, and I think, actually, that's one of the strengths of the movie. As you can tell, the source material actually respects what it's dealing with and believes in it. And, and that, that adds weight uh, to everything that's going on, for sure. 
I, I think I, I recall reading that this was like one of the few scripts that he was actually happy with. Right. Yes. Yeah, he liked this, yeah. this script in this movie. In comparison to uh, yeah. the other, <laughs> the other two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did he ever, did Wheatley ever comment on To the Devil of Donner? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because he, <laughs> he that, hated I, that movie. You know what's weird? I watched that movie when uh, I back in the late '90s. That's when Anchor Bay had the Hammer uh, license, and they were putting on all sorts of great. You know, adi- I mean, it wouldn't be great now compared to Screen Factory, but back in the day, they were pretty fantastic. You know, coming off Anchor of Bay was like the that. best we could do for a lot of those movies. Oh, they were, yeah. They oh were my amazing. god, yeah. But they they put out uh, to the Devil of Donner, and I remember watching it, and I didn't sort of bat an eyelash at it. You know, I was just like, oh, you know, this is maybe a bit more uh, risque than I expected Hammer to be back in the day. But, you know, it, whatever. I watched it. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later that I read the, you know, the controversy surrounding the disgust. Yeah, excuse me. Nastasia Kinski. And I was like, I, it yeah. hadn't occurred to me that she was that age when they shot that scene. And it's just, mm-hmm. how the, even in the 70s, how was that movie released? And I'm just wondering if Wheatley was, I hope the man was as properly mortified as he should have been, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, nobody was happy about that. And frankly, it all happened because Klaus Kinski lied on her contract and said she was 18. Um, Her father, her father was the one who basically propagated all of that. But anyway, it's all messed up and not good. But uh, yeah, no, he he was not happy with uh, the other two films. And that's one of the reasons that he very rarely, well, he didn't work with Hammer very much at all post this movie uh, because the lost continent came out in 68 and he did not like that. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those things where he was really good friends with Christopher. I mean, this movie wouldn't exist without Christopher Lee, you know, Lee became really interested in the occult when he was researching his role for Dracula. And he became friends with Wheatley who wasn't, who had kind of fallen out of favor with the public. Like his books, he was at the peak of his popularity in the thirties and forties by the fifties. He was kind of, People had forgotten about him. And, you know, in the 60s, especially in the mid 60s, like Satanism and the occult became like this hot topic again and started rising in public interest for whatever reason. And suddenly his books were kind of rediscovered. And that's one of the reasons that this movie sort of was even more powerful in terms of Hammer's eyes. Like, oh, we definitely want to make this now because now he's more relevant. But but Lee was trying to make this movie as early as 1958. Oh, wow. Yeah, like is that the just minute... because he wanted to break out of that box and he was like, this is such a good role for me? Yes, he 100% was like, I want to star in this movie, which yeah. at that time he had no leverage. He, was, he wasn't famous. Like Dracula made him famous. Like he, he had been acting, but the only reason he was even cast in Dracula was because he would take less money than the other guy they were going to cast. Mm, um, and he was tall. Like he's six foot four. So like they liked how tall he was. That's why they casted him as Frankenstein's monster. He was in Frankenstein and the only reason, yeah. And again, he just got it because he was very tall and he'd take less money. And then that led into Dracula and then Dracula became what it became. And so therefore he got a bunch of villain roles (laughs) because he was in Dracula. And then, you know, but slowly, but surely he started branching out into like European film and he played, um, he was, he was, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes and the, uh, was it the necklace, the something necklace? That was a Terrence Fisher film too. Um, in like the early sixties, but it wasn't made by hammer, but yeah, he was, he was definitely trying to find a role for himself that would put him as the good guy, um, in a big way. And so this was a huge win for him. And and he was incredibly, even at the end of his career, his two favorite movies that he would say he was in was this and wicker man. Oh, wow. 
Duh, Wicker Man is the best. <laughs> I was gonna say pretty pretty wide divide between those two. I think. Yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Under understandable. <laughs> no, I think we're getting his uh, his Sherlock Holmes film on Blu-ray here soon as part of that. Uh, Yes, yeah. set that Severin is putting out Eurocrypt. Eurocrypt. Yeah, of Christopher Lee putting out by Severin. Yeah, that's coming out. So I'll be nice. Fun. You but, know, after um, watching this though, I gotta say, you know, we talked a bit about Wheatley and the uh, the eleven novels with the Duke de Richelieu. I was looking here; it looks like this movie actually has a prequel of sorts. In that, another Wheatley novel called The Forbidden Territory was adapted back in 1934, that featured the Duke de Richelieu character. Unfortunately renamed in that film as uh, Sir Charles Farringdon, played by Ronald oh. Squire. But it's just neat to think there's uh, you know, there's another film out there with essentially the same character that Lee would eventually play some 30 years later. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I'm kind of curious what everyone's thoughts on just the, I mean, we've been talking a lot of generalities about the movie, like just the characters. Let, let's run through the characters real quick and just kind of see what everyone, like the dynamics between them, the actors who play them. Um, What's everyone's take on? I mean, we talked about Christopher Lee a lot, uh, but what about like Tanith or Rex? Like, what do we think about how they interact in the film? And is it good? Is it bad? What What are the general thoughts? I would just like to know what everyone's thoughts are on why it is. What is this trope? It's true of older films, certainly. I don't. I can't think of a newer film that attempted this with a straight face. But this idea of uh, you know, love at first sight, you know, that's the, oh, so between older Rex movies. and Tanith. Yes. Rex and Tanith, like Ugh. they see one another and then boom, oh, they're in love. Right. And as soon as the movie ends and they're done with all this pesky satanic cult business, they're going to get married and have children and live happily ever after. And that seems to be so true of every love story handled back in the day. And I'm wondering, is it just bad writing? Was it an accepted trope back then? Or did people just fall in love that quickly back then? <laughs> yes to the first two and no to the last. <laughs> I I will confess, I didn't even realize that we were meant to regard them as a romantic couple until he goes away with her, like, well after where we're at in the film right now. Like, yeah. I, I thought he was just driving around with her as a way to keep her safe. I never got any kind of romantic connection. And yes, because I'm obviously, like... I'm, you know, standing the Christopher Lee Rex relationship. <laughs> well, and it also feels really wrong because Tanith isn't in her right mind. Like yeah. she's right. she's under I mean, Mokata is Charles Gray's character is clearly shown to have, you know, mm-hmm. powers and, and can sort of seduce yeah. people mentally and and therefore sort of their judgment is not to be trusted. And Tenneth is never really in her right mind until the end. So when she comes out in many ways, she's meeting Rex for the first time. Um, And it's kind of predatory for him to uh, say, Oh, I saved you. You're with me now. It's an element that does not age particularly well. (laughs) You were hypnotized and you may not remember that you're in fact in love with me. Mm-hmm. Just also, trust please me give me your social insurance number and sign this document <laughs> about a expensive will. Yeah, there are no women that really stand out in this movie. That's for sure. No, so. yeah, her she she does not have agency. I mean, and and re- really, yeah. yeah, and it's a shame. And I mean, the the closest thing we get, and I, I mean, we'll get to it. But you you have sort of the Marie Eaton character, who I guess is probably intended to be the character with like the most agency from a female perspective, but even right. she is often the tool 
of Christopher Lee's character. Right. She's um, a device. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She feels, yeah, more like a device or a plot point yeah. than an actual character. Um, yeah. She which absolutely is, really is, but I also kind of love her. I think oh, yeah. Sarah Lawson is doing some fantastic stuff, particularly oh. the scene between her and Charles Gray. I actually think that scene is the best one in the movie. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say, and it's funny that earlier, Jinx, you said this is one of Terrence Fisher's uh, maybe lesser works. I think that scene is one of his best directed scenes. In a movie. I would agree. Like, it's I would agree. so fantastic. Because yeah. um, there's nothing happening. They're having a conversation 12 feet apart and you can't yeah. take your eyes off the screen. No. Oh, so yeah. Mesmerizing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I will say with this sequence, though, yeah, I, I, I've talked about this many times on this podcast and all its various iterations over the years, but I, when it comes to horror movie villains, nothing frightens me personally as much as cults. Um, whether it be, you know, the, the, the wicker man or kill list or race with the devil or midsummer or, um, news footage of the Capitol riots. Like I cults scare <laughs> the living hell out of me. They really do. Like I, I'm joking, but I'm not like, there is something about them that just gets under my skin in a way that I can't quite, yeah. You know, explain. And yet, I will say, watching this movie, you know, you put a bunch of people in robes together and get them out in the woods in the middle of the night, lighting fires and uh, spilling blood like I'm I'm usually a shivering mess. And yet, this time around, nothing. Nothing. No. Not even remotely frightening to me. And I'm wondering if that's... You know, Fisher is an accomplished director. If he wanted to make the sequence scary, I'm certain he could. And again, with me, he wouldn't have had to have tried very hard. But... There's something about the fact that this movie, you never get the feeling that the Duke de Richelieu or Rex are ever going to come out the other side of the story losers. Like this is a very two-fisted, pulpy, you know, adventure story in a way that's just kind of framed as a tale of the supernatural or, you know, a, a story of evil as it were. But it just, you know, to me, I never got the feeling while watching this movie that the cult ever had the upper hand. And maybe that's what's always so scary about them is, that's usually the case with every movie featuring a cult. You know, you you get the feeling that they are everywhere. They have eyes everywhere and they are going to prevail at the end of the day. And I never yeah. got that feeling with this movie. There needs to be more of a threat, I think. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. With the exception of Charles Gray, he's his presence. But yeah, the rest of the cult in general is just like, yeah, I agree that that threat is, is lacking. Yeah. Was it possibly because this movie really doesn't include any death? Like... At the mm. end of the movie, the only person who's died is Moscato. True. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I feel like what? we needed to either lose Tanith and keep her dead. Like, I know she right. dies, but it's really more of a convention. Um, or Simon. Like, because, I mean, unfortunately, I think Simon could have been an interesting character, but he doesn't ultimately get to do anything. So. We could have yeah, he... killed him at this sacrifice and then it would have been like, oh, OK, now all we've got left is Tanith. If they get her, they will be able to perform this sacrifice and yeah. shit will be bad. Right. I, I agree. something too about. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Go ahead. No, you're fine. I, the only thing I was going to say is I think it's a couple things. I think one. Well, one, this scene is too well lit. <laughs> it's too bright <laughs> for anything to be scary. Um, to the, uh, the the people in the cult. uh they none of them have a distinct person. They just feel like a hive mind. They're, yeah. they're all under Makata's control. So there's nothing really scary about them. And Makata as a villain is very effective, but, but the way he's effective is how sort of cordial and genial he generally is. Like that's, what's sort of creepy about him is that he just seems 
like sort of calm and un undisturbed or unperturbed by everyone else because he's just so certain he's going to come out on top but that's not really viscerally scary you know that he's so british too right like yes in in the original novel i don't think he is right he's supposed to be for no yeah you're right and he was also like a big overweight balding gross kind of guy is what he was supposed to look like like he was supposed (laughs) to be just very visually off-putting um you know and and instead they casted someone who was a little bit more handsome and british in his own way very Um, blowfeltish I would say, yeah, well, <laughs> nice. I, I would say that Christopher Lee is more, way more intimidating and, and actually plays, oh, yeah. one thing I like about Lee's performance is he actually plays Nick Duke almost like a villain. Like the way Christopher Lee bit. is performing feels like a villain role. He right. looks, uh, with his facial hair, he looks like the damn devil. He does. Yeah, like, <laughs> now, I will say, at the time. my God, like this to me, it's so weird in the space of a cut how this changes like the uh the the baphomet character like in the background that's so chilling to me oh yeah the go to mendes is creepy and then this you you see him up close and it's just kind of like oh that's a shame i I think it's creepy i like it i don't know i I, I like the goat his big wide (laughs) dumb eyes are what throw me he just i if it were just the face even but instead i'm just saying like he he you know it's he looks silly to me um and I just I, I I couldn't take him seriously as a threat anymore. Um, you know when they do the close up. Same thing with the cult. Like you know, talk about them not being scary. Yeah, sure. But even when they're frolicking around, there's something so weirdly sanitized about them in their robes and you know just jumping around having fun. It's like even the end of the witches felt far more dangerous than this. Yeah. And that was well, set yeah. in a school teacher's basement, right? I mean, here we're out in the middle of the woods. I it's like the night. Witches, there's though. fire. You know, <laughs> I, I, I liked it too. It was better than this, but um, you know, I don't know. It just it, this scene to me should have been the moment that really draws you in and makes you realize the stakes of the film and how horrifying you know the 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 threat is. And instead, it's just kind of like watching. It's kind of like yeah, they're going to be fine. Like it's going to be a bad day or two, but they're. They'll make it to the credits. I, I do agree, again, that the orgy thing would have been a lot more interesting than them just jumping around in robes. Um, and they were also supposed to eat, like, a huge feast and, like, gorge on food and stuff. Like, it was just supposed to be really disturbing and, and in novel. overwrought. Uh, even in the original script. Oh, oh, oh. Even. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they they eat this, like, giant feast and they show people, like, gorging on food. And then they rip off their robes and have an orgy. And I'm like, that sounds gross and weird and, like... But great. But great. Yeah. <laughs> it just would have made this <laughs> that one change would have would have made everything feel more bizarre and dangerous. Uh for the, even the rest of the movie, if nothing else like that happened, I think it would it would have a big effect on the film. I said those purples and reds really stand out in the blue. It was beautiful. Um oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure about their graphic design work and the logo, but you know, I guess yeah. with a cult you <laughs> You take what you can get. I suppose. Where did they get that work done? I wonder. Do you think that they had their own in-house person who designed <laughs> stuff for them, or did they have to farm that out and just promise the person they paid the secrecy? It's like if you could just not tell anybody about this, that'd be great. Oh my gosh, that reminds me of Kiss of the this thing. This is off topic a little bit, but I have to tell this story really fast because you said who designs their their logo. The in the Kiss of the Vampire, um, they Hammer used to this thing where they would license their movies for television syndication in the U.S. and a lot of times that re- required cutting a bunch of stuff out. 
And so whatever production company had the U.S. distribution rights would then in the U.S. shoot additional scenes with different actors and put them into the movie to make the movies longer. Oh, yes. Yep. And so in Kiss of the Vampire, they cut out all things that referenced vampires. <laughs> so they took a vampire movie, cut out all vampire references, called it Kiss of Evil, and then shot a like 25-minute subplot of the people who made the robes for the cult. That was oh, what they... Wow. So pretty much the joke Jinx just made was what <laughs> Universal decided to do to flesh out the movie. And it is unreal. It's almost worth watching because it's so bad. Like, it's just so... It's, it's so unbelievably terrible. It's like the woman who has to design all these white robes for this cult and it's this big job for her and she wants to get it so she can make the money, but she also knows it's a cult and it's wrong and she shouldn't support the cult. And it just... It's so bad. <laughs> To be but a fly on the wall in that exact yeah. meeting where yeah, they had that I conversation, just, like, uh, you know, hey, you know what's, uh, you know what's evil? What's that, Jim? Robe makers, robe manufacturing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's... we're laughing, but I feel like Netflix has already greenlit five episodes of this <laughs> with options for more. Oh, it's it's true. It'll be fantastic, and they'll cancel it. Right after right, two seasons, or maybe three. but no it's i i i mean the goat going back to the goat really quick though i i know what you're saying jinx like showing the the close-up is a little bit i don't know puts it's like showing the creature in curse of the demon and i know you like the creature in curse of the demon i love the creature in curse of the demon it's great (laughs) in theory it's great in stills like it's a fun design but it doesn't belong in that movie another movie that acts as a pretty good predecessor to this one and Burn Witch Burn. That's another one that would... Which was also a Matheson. Uh, yeah. Oh, Burn Witch Burn is so good. I like Burn Witch Burn more than this, but they're both good. Movies. Is it just because it's a man with, like, a head as opposed to, like, a full body prosthetic? Like, if he was entirely goat, goat goaded out, I guess, Maybe, would I, we I guess... believe it more? Maybe, maybe if it were just a goat. You know, I mean, Black Phillip in his own way is kind of terrifying in The Witch, but... I, I think it's the fact that it's so obviously a makeup to me. Whereas yeah, sure. if, if it were just yeah. this slightly out of focus in the dark, my goodness, what mm-hmm. is that back there? You know, it something is creepier like that. when it's out of focus, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would work like gangbusters, but instead you get that big close-up and it's like, oh no, it's a guy to makeup. It's cool. You know. It's I don't know. It's very well lit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they cared about this accuracy, but but the vomit is kind of like a mixture hybrid of like female body, male body and go, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they were just going for more, like more simplistic, but yeah, it, it could be, it could be a little bit weirder. Yeah, I agree. Plus, I mean, you know, I, I realize this is unfair because the movie came out in like 25 years later, but really there is no competing with Clive Barker's version of that character ever. So, uh, uh, Nightbreed, anyone? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I like Nightbreed. Okay. No. I I've never actually seen. <laughs> it's so great. The director's cut is amazing. Yeah. Some I've never seen the exist. theatrical cut of that movie. I've only seen the director's cut because yeah. I didn't see it till Screen Factory put it out, and I just figured I'd watch the cut that everyone likes more. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. I well, I adore the watch five cut, different versions. I know I can't do it. I can't watch all these cuts. I just I, I wait till everyone's like, which cut do I watch? Okay, I'll watch that cut. Yeah, yeah. like tell me the good cut. I don't know right. if it's the director, the theatrical, the David right. Fincher, yeah. the I mean, Blade Runner is cut, the worst, whatever. right? I can pretty keep bad. It straight. Blade Runner's got like twenty cuts, and I just it's whatever. I put on the first disc and I'll watch that. It's just one of those things I get excited about when they announce though. Like I remember when they put out that big Blu-ray set, what was it like five discs? It was like four yes, or five different it. cuts. It's theatrical work print, uh, mm-hmm. original director's cut, final cut, ultimate cut, super duper cut, you know? And it's like, Oh my God, that's amazing. They're putting all of that on there. And then, you know, I watched the last cut, whatever the final cut right. is. I've never seen any of the others, but I just, I don't know. As a collector, I love that they exist. Oh, for <laughs> sure. As long, long as it's, it's not George oh, Lucas thing of things like apparently this other cut of the devil rides out yeah, is because well, I don't that's... like if it were Fisher even who supervised, you know, those, okay, fine. But no, like years after the fact, it's just kind of like, let it be, you know, it is what it is. You know, it, I don't know why we have to tinker with it. No, it, it, it was a bad idea and it doesn't work. If you have the Blu-ray, you can check it out. I think they listed it as the one six, six to one version. Um, when you're selecting like special features and that takes you to the, um, the studio canal transfer, which also isn't as good as a transfer. It's like, a, like the colors are much more washed out. You can tell they're going off of like a, a poorer print. Um, cause I don't know that the negative exists for this movie anymore. I think there's just an inner positive. Oh, wow. Oh, it's sad. A lot of that stuff has been lost. But it's kind of amazing, though, that even at that, you know, we still get these amazing additions sometimes, you know. And I got to say, the Scream Factory has been doing just amazing work. I wish they would get around to the point when they finally released a big box set. I know I own most of these anyway, but I would buy it. Paul, you would buy it, too. I know. I, yeah, I wouldn't be happy about it, but I would do it. I wouldn't either. I feel like they're waiting until they get they're inching closer, but they're nearly to the end of the Dark Castle run. And I wonder oh. if they won't do a giant box set of all. Oh, the Dark yeah, Castles. you're right. Don't yeah. toy with my emotions. That's. I mean, it was it was only a matter of time before they did House of Wax. I knew mm-hmm. like it was. It was coming. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'm excited about it. I love that movie. I'm sure. a little upset well, that they skipped right over Gothica. And I'm not saying I was that Gothica say, are is they doing a good them sequentially, movie, but... but yeah, Gothica is also overdue. Like the movie's not great, but I'm willing to bet that there's stuff to be said about that film. Yeah, well, and if you're going to put out Ghost Ship, I think you can put out Gothica. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Be careful, hey, Paul. Hey. I'm sorry. I love Ghost Ship. I, I know. It's fun. But I'm just saying, like, if you put that out, like, what's wrong with Gothica? Well, I think, Ghost I Ship think is great, Paul, and Gothica, Gothica is not. They're two different. No. Okay. All right. All right. No. It's That's true. Weird. Gothica isn't a five-minute movie surrounded by 85 minutes of filler. Gothica is just <laughs> 90 minutes of filler. <laughs> I'm, I'm unfamiliar okay, with how to fair. use Skype. I don't know if I can hang up on just one person, but I'm going to try. <laughs> We're about to find out. It's been great. <laughs> no, I. You know, it's weird. I'm. It's so nice to see those movies get reevaluated in such a way. Uh, because I remember, you know, early aughts. Everyone, the died in the wool horror fans. Any any message board that you hopped onto back in the day, uh, reading the Fango letter pages. You know, people gave the dark castle movie such hell and it's nice Mm -hmm. to see you know sort of again you know people are uh, giving them another look because i remember being that fan back in the day watching house on haunted hill and 13 ghosts and being like um these are really really good 
I love these. Even from the set design alone, like you can shit on the screenplay. You can say you don't like the acting or the dialogue, but like they spent so much time and money getting those sets to the point where you were like, wow, this is just top tier set design. And I missed that level. House and 13 Ghosts is just mind blowing. Like, Mm -hmm. like forget about the movie. The house in that movie is just insanity. But. Mm -hmm. We're yeah, at the. Uh, we should mention we're at the hypnotism scene we were kind of alluding to yep. earlier, um, and yeah, I mean it's just it's it's a a world class sort of exercise in restraint. You know, it's one of the best hypnotism scenes in a movie. <laughs> and this definitely reminds me in a weird way of those sequences. It, it almost feels like the moments like this in Rasputin are kind of like a rough draft of this final copy. You know. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, that's a good comparison, Rasputin. Yeah. Um, well, and I I love how you know Fisher is not a guy who moves the camera a lot, mm-hmm. and he only does it when there's like a very specific reason to cinematically. And in this one, like the camera is moving in on her almost imperceptibly. Like if you weren't yeah. looking for it, yeah. you probably wouldn't notice that it's moving. And I just think it's it's beautiful camera work and they, just completely puts you into that that mindset yeah and then the intimacy of like really getting up close on charles gray's face is yeah. like he he's such he's such an unorthodox looking actor right like we don't yeah. see these right. kinds of faces in modern cinema anymore because he's not good looking enough quote unquote sure but i find his face is so striking and like just like the bone structure the angles it's it's captivating and then when we get up super close to him he's a really compelling figure yeah. his eyes though oh my god you're absolutely right yes. and they never and they never blink they, no. <laughs> they never blink and that just it puts you into this weird like you get caught up in it in a way like like you were mentioning earlier joe like nothing's really happening but you're captivated by it as if right. you were watching the most exciting thing you know that i love this i love a shot of this close-up frame of yeah. her mm-hmm. yeah. and i see does such eyes a are job. almost the same you know there's almost that link between yeah. them where yes. you're sharing the same yeah. set of eyes yeah, yeah. Sarah Lawson, you know, for all the things we we're saying about maybe the lack of, um, you know, her, her character, she does such a great job in this movie. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's like, it's obviously a very maternal role. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Like her entire function is to be worried about her charges and then later her daughter. But I, I like that she manages to bring more to the character than just that. And I, think that's the actress as opposed to the way it's written right right yeah for sure and i like that during that scene she's holding her daughter's doll like the I little know. doll i think that's yeah. like a nice touch. there's lots of little touches yeah yeah i actually didn't realize that the first time i watched it yeah 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 there's it's again it's it's such a small detail that it's easy to kind of just not pay attention to it but it's it's something that like you can tell that when they were putting this together like they really thought about every little element to make it work but anyway yeah that's that's one of my favorite terrence fisher moments in in any movie yeah that's great there um 
speaking of that, of Fisher and sort of his relationship with this movie, there, there are some parallels and correlations to this movie and uh, and and Dracula too. Like there's sort of the the three sort of men kind of surrounding it. Uh, you've got like Van Helsing sort of as the Duke, uh, kind of a parallel there, and then like Marie sort of as the Mina stand-in. Um, there's some so there's some kind of cool connections that that occur there and and again that's actually one of the reasons that lee found this novel was that he was told that it sort of has parallels to dracula and that's when he became friends with wheatley because he reached out to him and wanted to sort of interview him about the characters and stuff because he thought it could inform how he played dracula interesting which yeah. is curious because lee always seemed to put so much effort into portraying dracula and then inevitably you know i don't want to bash the later dracula movies but there wasn't a whole hell of a lot for him to do and then daniel daniel epler will come after you (laughs) (laughs) that's fine we'll arm wrestle you go after dracula um and i'm not saying i don't like those movies but even even by lee's own admission like he was constantly fighting to, yeah, you know, insert lines from Stoker's novel in and, you know, build the character up more. And inevitably, like the 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 movies always kind of even when they're at their best, those sequels, they kind of fail the character in a way. Well, yeah, and that was Lee's problem was that they never made the movie he wanted them to make, which was a true, fair, accurate adaptation of that character from the book. Um, the it closest took- we we get to that as the first one. And even that wasn't all the way to his liking. Well, we had the Jess Franco adaptation too, which was not a hammer movie, but it was probably the most faithful adaptation that Lee starred in. And yet, you know, the, the sad fact is, is that Jess Franco was no Terrence Fisher. You know, he was, you know, so it's just, yeah, it's a shame that Lee never, like you said, never got to do the movie that he really wanted to do. And it's a shame that they never gave him the opportunity. You know, they trotted him out as the character how many times, and yet they never really seemed to care about what his, you know, his interest and his take on the character was. Yeah. Well, and he did a ton of research for this movie. Like a lot of the the exorcism rites that he reads, he actually found on his own researching in libraries, and they're taken from actual, like, the occult texts. Um, so it's a little creepy in some ways. Yeah. Like that he would, he would do that, but yeah, almost all of the stuff that he shouts in the circle is stuff that he just researched on his own. Hmm. Yeah. It's really, really. Do you imagine a stone's throw on either side of the production that he was just, I don't know, wreaking havoc and not realizing it. You know, maybe there were thunderstorms (laughs) to the South, hailstorms to the North, you know, maybe conjured something that, you know, wreaked havoc upon the countryside. Who knows? What's interesting, because in my research, it seemed like Wheatley was not just very involved in this, but highly superstitious. So, I I mean, I wonder what Wheatley would have said if he knew that that was happening. <laughs> You're, yeah, that's a really good point, because he would often tell people that, like, I think some of his books even had, like, warnings at the beginning, like, don't do the things I write about. Like, do not mess with this <laughs> stuff. You know, don't read these incantations. Don't research this. It's real. It can hurt you. Um, which if I read that before I read a book, it would definitely unsettle me. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know if I want to read this book now. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. Like it definitely goes against what Wheatley I'm sure would have wanted him to do. But 
Yeah, it's as long as it makes for a better movie. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it does. I think I think uh, for all of the poor effects, I think the circle stuff works. Um, oh, but, yes. But yeah, I mean, do you so some people view this and I'm curious. So do you all see this movie as sort of like having any elements of like a religious sort of recruitment type of story, like hoping that it will get people to come to the side of religion? No. I, yeah, I wouldn't give it that much credit. I I definitely feel like it's maybe not trying to recruit people, but it's actively saying, hey, Christianity exists, good and evil. There is a battle and like you need to be on the right side of it. So maybe think about where you're headed. It kind well, of reminds, it kind of sorry, reminds me of the conjuring sort of like a modern conjuring. You know, it's kind of like, like I don't think they're it's not recruitment, but it's kind of just like, well, you know, it's it's this is the better side. So just, you know, just mm-hmm. as a warning, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't far say recruitment, but you, you know what I mean? I was curious yeah. that you mentioned the conjuring, like in a way, everyone is kind of equally as negligent of the little girl in this film yeah. as they are in the conjuring movies. <laughs> <laughs> Send her to her room. She'll be fine. She's um, good. I, no, I still I, don't I, understand why they don't bring her into the circle. Like, yeah. what a sleeping bag. Come on, folks. It is That's, a little weird. I kind of wondered that, too. They have the world's worst Alfred watching over everybody. Like, the man keeps making terrible decisions throughout the course of the movie. Why don't they fire that butler? It's, uh, you know, the first time. Like, yeah, he tried to save the choking guy, but, you know, he... he Poor decision. And then, you know, with the little girl, it's just kind of like, I, what did, did the old man fall asleep? Is that how she got out? Like, it's just. I don't know. If, if there were, I can say this as a guy who has two daughters, if there were. I thought you were going to say multiple butlers. As a guy who has at least two butlers. um, No, as a guy who has two daughters, if there was a a cult of Satanists after me, um, wanting to like sacrifice me so they could call forth their, their devil God, I would not leave my kids alone. During mm-hmm. that time period, yeah. I would probably keep them with me if I was trying to protect myself. So I, I think that is a weird decision they make. <laughs> I um... I will say I like the acknowledgement in this film, though, that they have to protect themselves like they mm-hmm. they can't go to the police. They can't go to the city or anything like they basically just have to hunker down and ride the storm out. And I I appreciate what you said at the top, Jinx, that sometimes this doesn't feel very fast paced um but i i also feel like the film is surprisingly go 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 in the fact that it just like begins like we yeah we immediately open we're grabbing these these two kids before the satanists can get them and then like from that point on sure we stop to talk a lot but like we also don't we're always barreling towards the conclusion you're right. They don't have we don't have that 15 minutes of padding up top. We don't have the save the cat moment. You know, it's it's we just dive right in. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I um, and Paul, to your point a minute ago about the, uh, you know, whether or not this was religious recruitment or not. I did think it was interesting that there's this kind of. There's this kind of almost charge in the movie that. Yeah, good is good and evil is evil, but by the end of the movie, there's this feeling almost that if you're a non-believer, then you're going to fall prey to evil, no matter what, or you're going to be an instrument of evil through maybe no fault of your own, simply by being somebody who is not a believer in the first place. You know what I mean? Which I thought was well, kind of yeah, interesting uh, note no, that I'm isn't really 
No, you're fine. It's just it's 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 weird that, that was kind of the note that was played, but never really leaned on that hard. And it's something that I was kind of hoping would be resolved or at least, you know, acknowledged more than it was by the end of the movie. And it never really is. But I don't know. It's just it's kind of an unsavory, you know, uh, idea, I think, in its own way. Um, I don't know. But well, I, I think to your point, this movie sort of presents evil as charming. Right. Like evil is this charming thing that's easy to be seduced by. Um, and not a lot of movies at that time were kind of presenting that message. And it's a message that kind of carried through into other stories and things like that. Um, and they had kind of played with that with vampires. But, you know, this is this is taking like instead of making it a metaphor, it's just saying, no, this is like there's good and there's evil. There's not really much metaphor mixed into this. It's just pure, simply are you buying into one or the other? And it, I, I like the seductive way in which they present, you know, joining the cult and being in this group and it's fun and mindless and you don't have to worry about all these other things. Whereas the people who are on the side of good are forced to sort of deal with their consciences and deal with kind of evil's more powerful influence. Um, you know, they, they don't have those same sort of powers because they, they're not going to abuse the otherworldly elements that evil would. Um, although there is sort of that element at the end where, you know, if you are on the side of good, eventually there will be some sort of righteous power that does save you like good will out, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's the only thing that kind of flies in the face of that <laughs> core message, you know? Yeah. And I wonder if there, you know, it sounds like it definitely probably would have been, but I'm wondering if that was, part of Wheatley's novel, or if that was something that was sort of, it, it feels very pat. It feels very much like a studio note, like, Hey, can we have a really big up ending in the last two minutes? Could you just get this idea across before we hit the credits? But it also does, you know, as you've noted, it doesn't feel too far astray from, you know, uh, Fisher's previous work. And it sounds like from Wheatley's novels as well. Yeah. Wheatley definitely, Maybe it's just not you as know. complex, you know, uh, as well, they, I would hope they, their other work was. Definitely, they the case, utilize but... the power, quote unquote, like power of God, you know, like the the the, the divine kind of intervening. Um, and but it is interesting though because usually the savants in Terrence Fisher films are always, you know, men. So I do like that in this one, it's it's Sarah Lawson's character that sort of is the one that kind of steps in and has the right you know, things to say and do that kind of end up saving the day as opposed to the more what you might have thought the obvious choice was in Christopher Lee. I thought that was kind of at least a nice shift uh, away from what we usually get out of these movies. Yeah, I saw a review of that that talked about how he's an interesting figure because he's not necessarily a man of action and it's not because he doesn't have the strength of his convictions. Like he, you get the impression he always knows what's going on and what he should do, but he's not willing to just barrel into things. Like we repeatedly see him pull people back from making stupid, impulsive, emotional decisions because uh, I'll credit this review for saying it's because he knows that they need to live to fight another day because evil can't be that easily vanquished yeah no that's a good point yeah and that's that's true he does feel like he has sort of an otherworldly degree or an almost like an omniscient narrator like he knows exactly what's going on everywhere 
and he's counting on other people to sort of listen to him and, and act in the way he needs them to rather than doing those things himself. He needs mm-hmm. to build that into others because otherwise that this is just going to keep happening and it's, it's a perpetual cycle. You know, it's a very I, like I, non Hollywood element as well, right? Like yeah. he, he would always be forced to, to galvanize the group, but you know, he'd be expected to be throwing punches and like yeah. defeating cultists and so on. Right. I have not Fisher's direction a little bit for this movie simply for, you know, you know, it's pacing and again, maybe how measured it was at times. Maybe that didn't suit the material, but I will say he shoots the hell out of this sequence. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, this scene is this. Great. again. What do we? What do we have? It's just four people standing in a circle. Yeah. <laughs> well, and um, he had Arthur Grant shooting this movie too, who hadn't. I, I don't know that he had shot anything for Fisher before this, um, because he did Quatermass in the Pit, and Frankenstein must be destroyed after this. But I think this was the first time that he wasn't like a normal hammer cinematography. I think he had done like Shadow of the Cat and Paranoiac and stuff, which that movie's really well shot. But like, so I think it, it, this is a case of having, um, you know, a really great cinematographer step in and work with Fisher to really capture, you know, and this is the scene where, you know, we talked earlier about how this movie lacks a bit of the typical hammer atmosphere. This scene really regains some of that. Yes, Absolutely. But now we can talk a little bit about the effects. <laughs> so this spider was from the London Zoo. The first one died. Oh. <laughs> Under the lights. They oh. they they put lights on it and the heat from the lights killed the spider. I would have thought oh it was gosh. the fucking gamma radiation that made him that size. And then they had to get a second spider, which they did not light as harshly, and it lived, so. That is the sad spider story. But um, yeah, that isn't great. And then <laughs> cutting to what is clearly just a spider on like a tabletop. You know, and weirdly enough, I think the sequence would have worked color. if they had just chosen one or the other. Like mm-hmm. I could have handled the dodgy effects had they not been cutting back and forth between yeah. the two. Because mm-hmm. it's just so obvious when they do, right? Yeah. I do like that he doesn't... Like, he stops her from running, but he initially isn't... Like, there he says it's not Peggy, but he doesn't initially say that. Like, he he wants them to come to those conclusions on their own. Um, that they're being sort of shown yeah. mirages, in a way, um, and, and glamours. And he's trying his best to teach them how to handle these situations without being entirely explicit. Because he knows, like, ultimately they're going to have to face this stuff on their own in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is some cool stuff going on character-wise there with, like, Lee and how he's interacting with the people in the circle. This uh, might be a bit controversial, but I think this would be a better movie had that actually been Peggy. Oh, like, put her in actual danger? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Richelieu or can't be right about child. it. <laughs> exactly. It needed, you know, we're in the third act. Let's up the stakes. Kill a kid. You know, I, I think killing Simon is the I think what Joe said earlier about how Simon really should have died to raise the stakes for the climax. I think that's the way to go. Yeah. I think that would have made the movie much more powerful. 
I won't lie. I actually got a little confused as to exactly who, like, what Simon's relationship is. Is he their adult son? Like, is he the the Eatons, or are they just no. friends of? He's the son of a different friend. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's super confusing. Yeah. So, like, the impression I got is that he's the grown son of one of their friends that died, and a long time ago, and so they stepped in as like surrogate parents almost but like they just were also his friend um and kind of like watched out for him and stayed in his life and so now they feel beholden to ensuring that he doesn't fall in with this crowd um and obviously driven more by duke i do think duke and i I actually agree with you joe duke and rex's relationship has a lot of subtext um that is I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if they intended it or not, but it's in the movie. It is very clear to me that there's something going on there a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like they're, you know, they're, they're bachelors who go on adventures together. Right. And they're just like, Oh, that's close. barely. <laughs> so we, we're coming up on the angel of death. Um, yeah, here he is. That's... So what do we think about the Angel of Death? What's everyone's thoughts on this guy? I actually don't mind it. I don't hate it. Yeah, I, it's better than the spider. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I like it. I Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, Jinx yeah. is sighing, so I'm guessing he doesn't like it. But I, no, I like not... the Angel of Death. <laughs> no, the, I actually think the unmasking is quite good. I, yeah. I like the entrance. The problem is, is the weird sort of... <sighs> Like reversing of wings. No, no, you know, the wings don't even bother me that much. It's the weird editing where the footage moves forward, then reverses, then moves forward again. Oh, okay. It's like, guys, come, why? You know, why do that? Just, but, you know, it's not, not only is it not effective, like you're actually damaging the sequence because otherwise I think it's a really neat look. Do you know why? And they I did love that? the idea. Do you know uh, why they did that? Oh, there it is. Look, I mean, you can almost yeah. hear the DJ, like, you know, <laughs> skipping the record there. There, see the blue screen? Oh yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, that was an unfinished effect. Uh but the horse only had one lung. <laughs> and so it wheezed and couldn't really do a lot. That yeah, I'm not even kidding. The horse had one lung and so it could only do that like jump move like once or twice. Um and that was I had to reuse it. Yeah. It was it, yeah. it was literally like it has it was a horse with asthma and like it couldn't breathe well and it wheezed. Light-sensitive uh, so, tarantulas. We've got asthmatic yeah. horses. Well, all tarantulas are light-sensitive, Jigs. If you put this on movie a hard light on any tarantula, it would kill it. Okay, I'm um, glad you told me that because I didn't know that. And the next time I see a tarantula, I'm turning the light on my phone on and I'm going to kill the son of a bitch. Like, I... Come on. Come on. I, could try. Well, I guess I could not try. all tarantulas die. Some of them live I'll, in the desert. So. I'll give it a sunburn. But um, anyway, so... <laughs> But no, I actually, I really dig that sequence. I think it's really cool. Um, I wish they had left the blue screen instead of changing it. But I mean, their original intention, though, was to put like the fires of hell behind it. So that was supposed to have like weird, crazy, psychedelic, you know, stuff behind the face. Um, Paul, we've reached that point in the podcast. Then when I have to ask you, when they did the effects for the 2012 version, the fire, is it CG? It's all CG. Yeah, it's horrible. Ah. Um, everything they did, they even like CG'd the spider a little bit to try to make it look more natural. And it's just not, I mean, they didn't like put a CG spider in, but they like 
painted over it a little bit and it's just very clearly modern modern effects do not work in older films like it's just so clearly added on that it it doesn't yeah doesn't really work and then it feels really disingenuous to the movie that was made so it's interesting like i understand definitely the you know the horse the horseman of death that obviously makes sense if we're thinking about religious scripture but the spider is such an unusual choice for me like i feel like it would have been more believable to have had like the cultists kind of infiltrating the room because then you don't have to worry as much about the effects and you could have them kind of disappear and stuff yeah was the spider in the novel do we know i you know what i don't know i don't know what they're haunted by in the novel that's a good question because i know that the whole circle sequence does happen and they're haunted by visions um, from makata but I'm I I would imagine it is, but I mm-hmm. you know I don't know. It's almost too specific uh, not to be. Right. That that's my thought. Yeah, and, and maybe yeah. there's some key reason. You know, like that's the thing is sometimes yeah. when these adaptations happen, like th- there's something in the novel that ties into like the girl being afraid of spiders or something specific right. or whatever. But like, yeah, that's the only thing conjecture. that I can find, I found a. Uh synopsis of the novel and the only thing that it reads it's not too terribly detailed but it just reads uh makata forces rishlu and the other occupants to defend themselves through a night of black magic attacks during this makata summons the angel of death using the medium of Tanith. the defeat of the angel results in tanis death so that's pretty much everything that we have in the movie although mm-hmm. night of black magic attacks sounds better than uh i think what we got i don't know i i <laughs> I, I, I hate to sound like I'm super negative on this movie. I do think it's a good movie. I really do. It's just, uh, you know, I just think it's a lesser effort for both Fisher and Hammer. I really do. And yet it has so much in it that I really, really do. Yeah, like. I wouldn't I say lesser. Release. I think there's plenty of movies that rank below this. I mean, maybe not in Fisher's catalog. I, I was going to say, not, not for Fisher, at least. But, but, but again, everything Fisher made was at least very good is kind of how I look at it. So I, it, it's... I mean, there's plenty of movies that, you know, think about like any uh, mummy movie, Curse, Curse of the Mummy's perfect. Tomb, The Mummy Shroud. Yeah, all the pretty much. any. Well, the first mummy's good. And that's a Terrence Fisher film. I mean, that's a good question. Would you put this above Terrence Fisher's The Mummy? No, or absolutely no? not. Really? I see. I think I would. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think I, would. I don't want that's this to turn into an part. argument, though. Especially, yeah, about a different movie that we're no, not Paul, watching. It's, it's fine. I respect um, you. You're wrong. But it's, it's fine. I'm wrong a lot. I get I'm used to it. I um, feel like you're both in agreement that a bad Fisher is still better than, yes, you yes, know, exactly. good efforts from other directors. Yeah, exactly. I would put this above, uh, you know, definitely Curse of the Werewolf, at least. OK, now he's just trying to go yeah. me into it. That's just cruel. <laughs> I'm sorry. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I I do like I mean, now we're getting into some of the stuff where like we were talking about earlier, some of the more problematic elements of how Sarah Lawson's used in this finale, um, where Christopher Lee is basically like calling on her to kind of using reverse hypnotism. Like it's the other side of the conversation she had with Mikata. You know, it's, it's the other end of that um, where he's trying to willing participant this time. Right. Agreed. Yeah. And, and again, it ties into her, not just like her motherly instincts, um, but like the inherent goodness that we sort of believe she represents. Um, that's something I really think, again, comes through in her performance is that she really 
comes across as a truly altruistic character, really almost more so than anyone else in the movie, even Christopher Lee, because again, he comes off a little menacing, even though mm-hmm. he's for the side of good. He, you get the impression that he would be willing to do questionable things to defeat evil. <laughs> yeah. Like again, let's, let's have a Netflix prequel series about the early adventures when he was involved in the dark arts and oh, it's like, yeah. he got out of it and that's why he knows all this stuff and he knows how bad it can be. That would be awesome. Like all the, the weird questionable that. shit he did <laughs> before he got to this point. I mean, it's basically what Ripper from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was always teased to be. And that will never Jimmy get Stewart it. Also, also something I wish I could have seen. Yeah. <laughs> we won't now. Um, no. Oh, yeah, I know. Damn shame. But. Yeah. So what do we think about Teneth's Tenneth, Tenneth death? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, she's dead. We just see Rex carry her in. <laughs> it's like, oh, I guess she expired. Nice. Okay. Yeah, it felt really... That whole character, I don't know. It, it just feels very it's, mishandled. That's my biggest issue with the movie, I think, is probably okay the whole Tana thing. Because they're going to Superman her back to life. Oh, gosh. He's he's going to fly around the Earth. He's going to reverse time. And then, boom, she's alive again. It's, it's fine. I could not believe that's how this movie ended. I, I, yeah, I had actually read the Wikipedia entry because I kind of wanted to know what I was getting myself into when I picked the films. And I had read that this one was one of the better regarded ones. And I read the, the plot synopsis and thought, okay, I almost want to pick this, not because it sounds good, but because I need to see how this actually plays out on screen. I'll confess. I actually thought the Wikipedia entry was miswritten because I you know, we don't really see Tana die when the world cycles backwards. There's nothing to really indicate that. It's just like, oh, she's alive again. Okay, cool. End movie. Yeah. Well, and Hammer has this tendency to have incredibly abrupt endings. Like, there's no real denouement. It's just, you know, sort of the climax and then two sentences, credits. Mm-hmm. Like that tip that's very typical of Hammer's output. Um, and sometimes that works really, really well because you're kind of left feeling like, okay, sort of like you mentioned about this movie, how uh, I know we talked a lot about the pacing. I actually sort of dig the pacing because I sort of like how it's always moving to the next thing, even mm-hmm. when it's a little boring, like everything is yeah. sort of constantly in motion. Cogs are always turning. Um, and sometimes when you have an ending like that, you, you kind of leave feeling like, oh, wow, this was exciting right up until the very end. It never got, you know, boring, but the, in this movie, it sort of hurts it because it's, it's a very convoluted final 15 minutes. A lot of shit goes down, not very well explained. Um, and then we're, we're given a lot of exposition through dialogue and then the movie's over and it's, it's just strikingly bizarre and kind of flies in the face of a lot of what the movie's been up until that point Mm -hmm. there's something about this moment him walking into this it just reminds me of horror of dracula in a weird way and it occurs to me like i and i do love that reveal watching this movie you know we talk about or at least i did anyway like the 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 notion that fisher's direction may have been mismatched to the material but at the same time i think this movie is kind of fascinating in Hammer's filmography simply because it, it feels like the direction belongs to older Hammer to me in a way. You know, um, obviously Fisher built what we 
would know as that kind of old school hammer style. And yet at the same time, like the, the, the story, the, uh, the material feels like it's reaching toward the seventies and kind of where they're going to go. So you have this movie that kind of stands at the midpoint between the two eras of hammer, I think more so than any other movie that I can think of that we've seen, you know, thus far. And I'm just wondering, like, not only that, you know, but it also feels like this movie might be the precursor to other movies of this type. Like I just, in the way that it deals with the subject matter in kind of a classy, but also measured way, but you know, as wild as the story is like it, you know, we talked about the conjuring earlier. It feels like there's a little bit of this movie's DNA in a movie like that, or even uh, Julianne, tell me if you think I'm crazy for this, but even something like you're an A24 fan. Do you see any sort of connection between this movie and say some of the movies that we get now through A24 or any modern sort of paranormal or supernatural horror film, or am I completely nuts for this? Sure. But I, I, again, I, I think like this, the safety in how it all ends up is not, is not very like, I like it's like that, that wouldn't, well, then again, the, then I look at the conjuring though, that which is that like that, that has, <laughs> I don't know, but like, I think the safety of it all doesn't feel like it's too, I feel like people would kind of be like, that's it. Like us watching it now, it's a little bit like, that's it. Like we, we, we view things differently now. It's like the contemporary kind of like, again, it's just, it just feels safe. I I, I don't know. Yes. And no, I kind of feel like. That's fair. And um, Paul, I mean, you know, you and I have taken this hammer ride together. Like how, how do you feel about this movie's placement in the overall filmography? like in Hammer's uh, sort of catalogs that were? I think it was an inevitability. Um, they were always moving towards the occult. They were always going to do a big prestige kind of classical cult movie. They were trying to make it through the early 60s and they couldn't. Um, this is the movie that really changes their trajectory for the end of their reign, for better or for worse. Um And I see it as being, it's certainly one of the last big movies that all of these people worked on. Um, You know, that Anthony Hines was a part of, that James Bernard did the music for, that Bernard Robinson did the sets for. Hell, if this thing had been shot at Bray Studios, I mean, it would have been in line with all of their Golden Age movies. It was them trying to do uh, a Dracula again. Like that was their hope. That was what they really poured themselves into. And I think it really is an example of everything firing on all cylinders. I mean, everyone did a good job. Does it all coalesce as as well as some of their earlier films? No. Um, but I think some of that is because they don't, the, the my sad answer to it is I don't think they really understood where modern horror was going. I think this is an example of them trying to be a Rosemary's baby and not really getting why that movie's good, right. <laughs> you know, and not really quite getting it all the way. Um, it, but it's their take on it. And I still think it's a very good movie. I really like yeah. it and I'd still rank it relatively highly in an overall list of hammer, but it wouldn't breach like a top 10 or something. Um, and I, and I think it's important. I think it's an influential film. I think a lot of those movies that did utilize, um, you know, religion and cults, definitely kind of borrow a bit from some of the stylistic things this movie's doing. Um, but it, it's, it's not what hammer was good at. Hammer's biggest mistake was trying to be something they weren't. 
Yeah. But it's interesting too then because you're you're basically saying that they could only really reign supreme for a particular period of time and then the yeah. world would move past them. So like yeah. I guess in a way this movie is inevitable. It it doesn't matter how well shot it is, how much they use their A team, like it yeah. one of them was going to fail because they just couldn't keep up with the times. That that's what I think. I think everything has its season, you know, and, and I and I feel bad saying this because I'm a, I'm a huge Hammer fan and I love Hammer and I wish it hadn't shut its doors. And the funny thing is, I think in the 80s, Hammer would have been huge. If oh. Hammer had lasted till the 80s, they mm. could have made some amazing fucking movies that would have involved all of the because all of these people were still alive. We could have had 80s Hammer with Cushing and Lee that could have brought in Vincent Price. Like, we kind of get stuff like that with, like, House of Long Shadows. That's not Hammer. But, like, we get stuff that's trying to be Hammer but, like, can't quite do it. If Hammer had actually been around – and they were already genre splicing in the 70s. It just wasn't getting out there. Like, they did Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which is basically a kung fu vampire movie. That would have done really well in the 80s, but they didn't – it just didn't hit the right time and it didn't get the the proper release. Um, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that had they lasted just a bit longer, um, I think Hammer would have seen a great resurgence. But the late 60s and early 70s was just not nothing about the horror landscape meshed with what Hammer was, what their identity was. And yet you would have had in the 80s, you got to imagine there would have been several up and coming directors who had grown up on a hammer who would have brought that. Lo- I mean, oh, yeah. know, it, it's not hard to imagine Fright Night being a, an 80s hammer production. It you basically know? is, <laughs> you know, it, it essentially is that that's what it's referenced. Fright Night is embodying the hammer legacy. Um, right. And that's what it's referencing. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, it would have been great to see that. And, and I think it would have been a different movie. And I think but at the same time. We could have had more movies like that um, coming from the studio that that popularized these characters, potentially with someone like Christopher Lee in it as a vampire. I mean, that would have been really amazing. And I think plus they would have had none of the issues like the censorship issues that they had to deal with in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, which is why those movies were even more toned down than they than they really were intended to be. So it's yeah, I mean, this is it's a really interesting movie in in their sort of legacy Um, and an important one. It's worth watching and talking about, you know, even if it might not be the best of the best. I think it it deserves a positive reputation. I I love this shot of the the cross, the fire in front of it. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it just it just ends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big thing, right? Like Charles Dance is such a an, an interesting, imposing figure, but really, like all of this, it's like, and we're done. Fire, yeah. and then we're done. <laughs> like he doesn't even get a big moment. His no. I, well, I guess the big moment is that he nearly kills a child. But sure, nearly. That's though. a little. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his. But you're right. I mean, his his big demise is. He spins toward Cameron a very dark shadow sort of way with this look on his face, like oh flames. And that's it. He's done. He's gone. Yeah. Well, and then after this movie, to be honest, the old traditions basically die out. After this film, Hammer goes in the direction of, you know, they they go racy, they go brutal, they they dive into 
a lot of different things that they never did before. And 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 look, I'm not saying that after this movie there's bad Hammer movies. I love a ton of Hammer movies after this film. But in terms of their reputation with the public, what they were making, what they started diving into, it became just a desperate attempt to meet the modern times where they were at. Right. Yeah, they um, and, were chasing the fads. They were chasing yeah. them as fast as they could, as hard as they could. And that was apparent in the filmmaking. Um, and even though there's stuff we can look back on and really, really appreciate and say, wow, they really pushed the envelope in these places. And they did. The audiences at the time were just not connecting to it. Yeah. Um, and we're far more interested. I mean, Night of the Living Dead was about to hit. That was going to change everything. And then Grindhouse Cinema was going to become the new thing. Um, and, you know, the, the the British government was was never going to allow anything close to that existing in the UK. So Hammer was going to have to sort of recreate that type of cinema in their own way. And it was just it was always going to feel a bit neutered. Um, you know, so they tried to sort of combine that classical element of, um, you know, aristocratic horror. <laughs> uh, with Grindhouse, and you get some very bizarre things. I mean, you get Vampire Lovers, which is which is definitely an interesting movie. You get um, Lust of the Vampire, which doesn't really work, but is interesting. You get um, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, as, as Joe talked about earlier, um, and you guys did a great write-up on that. Um, but it, it's, again, some really interesting stuff, but not a lot of it really hit and, and brought them commercially to where they needed to be to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're interesting failures. Right. Yes. Yeah. Which exactly. I guess is also how we could describe this film. Yeah. I mean, it it's from a modern day lens. Yeah, not it it doesn't all really work. Um I again, I like it. I I firmly enjoy this movie. Yeah. Um I think there's enough in it that I can kind of walk away saying, "Yeah, thumbs up." But it's not the home run that maybe its reputation says it is. <laughs> it be, mm-hmm. Yeah. In the realm of like of ha- prestige hammer, like where would you place this as, as, as someone who's a novice and hasn't seen it as much as you guys have? Uh, this would not be my first recommendation to someone who maybe yeah. isn't super familiar with hammer. This would not be my 15th recommendation. I mm. don't think. Oh, I um, okay. Now, well, I mean, maybe that's unfair to say simply because I would my and Paul can attest to this. The first thing I would recommend to anybody would be the entire Frankenstein cycle. So that's seven films out of the way, like right there. Right, um, OK, but <laughs> and then after yeah. that, everything that Terrence Fisher ever, ever you know, ever did. And you know, except maybe this and then, you know, that takes you up to about 15. Maybe this would be my 16th recommendation somewhere around. Well, probably yeah. not. No, because I, I would agree if if I was going to give someone 10 movies like, hey, watch these 10. Now, here's the thing it, in Hammer's reputation. This is a very important movie. This is a movie that represents a big turning point for them as a studio. Mm-hmm. So it is it is probably top 10 in the story of Hammer. But if someone said, hey, I just want to watch a bunch of good Hammer movies. What are the 10 you'd recommend? This would not be in my 10. Right. right. Okay. Paul, would it be in your 20 even? It'd be in my 20, probably. Really? I think. I, yeah, because I, I think it's important enough. That's why. I think it's an important enough movie in the story of Hammer. I'm, I'm as interested in Hammer's like story as I am in their movies. Because <laughs> I find their story to be just endlessly fascinating. Like There's so many weird little anecdotes and 
how this all came together. It feels so, some of it feels so accidental. Um, and it's just odd to me that it had such a profound effect. The studio had such a profound effect on the horror genre. And yet it seems to be, and it's one that everybody knows. Like you talk to mm-hmm. any for, horror fan, they all know Hammer. They're, they're aware of Christopher Lee as Dracula or Peter Cushing as Frankenstein. But many people haven't really ever watched these movies. Like yeah, they know I about them, they've of... heard of them. Right. Like it's like the most famous thing that no one's ever seen. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people are like Julianne and I, where it's like, oh, we know a little bit. We've maybe watched a film or two, but we don't have a good sense of yeah the history or the impact. And yeah, yeah, which right. which is you know, and that's the fun thing about being a horror fan is you get to discover. So, and it's why we wanted to do this podcast. Is like I feel like man, these movies deserve to be seen and deserve to be talked about. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely what I would say is this like. You know, even if you watch this movie and you're kind of lukewarm on it and you're like, oh, I don't know, I would tell you that the best stuff in this film is why you should watch the other ha- like great Hammer movies. Because a lot of times there are whole movies that are just comprised of those best scenes. Right. Well, I guess know, I like, should ask them, Paul, like Julianne, Joe, like, you know, being novice, you know, Hammer viewers, like, do you feel compelled to seek out more having just watched this movie? I mean, yes, but probably what's the site here? Here's the thing. This, this movie should be up, up like right up my alley, like, up, like off the bat. Cause I love, I love this kind of stuff that's in it, but I think, I think I need a little bit more. And I, and from what it sounds like, there are some things that go a little bit further, but is that the stuff that comes after that gets a little bit like quote unquote, like trashier though? Like, I, I don't know. Like I'm kind of like, this movie starts with, like you said, like kind of like, like a bridge between like the prestige and more like the, as they get kind of grittier, but like, I, I, I feel like I should like this a little bit more than I, I liked it, but like more, more than I did. So I, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how I feel. Like, yeah, I don't know where I'd go from here to get <laughs> more of the things that I, I like about this movie, but I kind of get more out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I probably feel a little bit more warmly than that. This this was like a three and a half out of five for me. So I actually liked the vast majority of it. It was just a couple of things where I thought, eh, okay, this just didn't land the way I would have liked. Um, I think part of what it was is that when I was picking, when I was looking at the list of films that I could pick from, I definitely ended up, I think, falling into the historical side. Like you mentioned, Paul, where it's like, this is a very important film for their filmography. It's by a really good director. It's Christopher Lee. It's Charles Gray. So I think I got suckered into almost the prestige of it. Um, And I think I would probably just want to do my research a little bit more and say, oh, okay, you just both mentioned the Dracula or sorry, the Frankenstein stuff. So Mm -hmm. it'd be like, okay, if I'm going to do that, I think I'd pay more attention to which films are being strongly recommended. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, I I, hopefully that that definitely you guys check out some of those other ones. and I would say, yeah, if you're if you're going to pick like a franchise, the Frankenstein franchise is, is where it's at. I mean, it's it's a very good franchise. It's really interesting. They all have a lot to offer. There's great character work in it. And Peter Cushing is, you know, it's it's one of his best things he's ever made. So um, and it's a good entryway. It's a good entry point into Hammer in general. And they really those movies span the whole of Hammer's run. You know, the first one is what kicked off Hammer's sort of big step up in the world in 1957 and the final one happens in the early 70s um, Mm -hmm. when they were kind of at the end so 
it definitely runs the gamut of all of the stylistic choices that Hammer tends to make throughout the years. And it's definitely amazing to watch Peter Cushing start out the series as a young man and, and that as a much, not only as a much, much older man, but Paul and I have talked about this before too, but the, the, the arc that that character makes, you know, uh, yeah. with Cushing in the role is just, I, it's just a wonder to behold, like to see. I'm, I'm going to write that, that article. <laughs> that article's coming. You've been promising that for that, years. That article's I coming. I want to read it. It's, it's a big one. That's why I've been <laughs> but sitting he is, on it. But it's a you big know, he goes, from, uh, he goes from villain to anti-hero to reluctant hero to straight up hero to diabolical villain to sad, pitiable fool. Like it's, and Cushing makes it work. Like the continuity that he brings to it, like with his performance from, you know, installment to installment. It's just, it's, it's one of my favorite things ever in horror movies. So not forgetting hammer, just horror period. And I, uh, I adore that cycle. So if you get the chance, if you're willing to give, uh, hammer another shot, I would definitely say the Frankenstein cycle is where it's at. And even, you know, there's a kind of darkly comic reboot tossed in there too, called horror Frankenstein with Ralph Bates in the lead role that is pretty much widely maligned, but I think is still pretty, uh, pretty fantastic too. Yeah. That's going to be featured on upcoming Dead Ringers, actually. Oh, there you go. Tie in. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Before we go, Julianne, Joe, would you like to offer listeners kind of your final thoughts on having checked out this movie? I mean, I, I'm I'm glad I did. Listen, I I wouldn't have bought it if I wasn't like this is up my alley it just didn't quite reach the level I wanted it to but like I it's it's a damn good movie I'm gonna watch it again I'm happy I did it's been on my list for years to be honest so I'm glad I actually (laughs) had to watch it and uh yeah this is it's it's like it's almost like for me like it's almost an iconic film but it's not quite there but it's for the efforts I I still really appreciate it and yeah I, I still I'm still warm on it I still dug it it just wasn't mind-blowing if that makes sense you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i quite liked it i thought that there are a couple of key standout scenes like the hypnosis scene and the stuff within the circle i think is all really really good and for those scenes alone i would probably recommend it and i feel like yeah it's probably not the best gateway hammer horror film but it's also not a bad one to just kind of dip your toe into either all right. Now, can I ask the both of you, where can folks find you at online and uh, what can they keep an eye out for from you in the future? Uh, you follow me at the Jewel Marie on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I got some stuff coming out, some articles, and um, I'll be uh, I'll be in the new issue of Fangoria coming out this summer. And uh, that's kind of it. Yeah. Just a casual, like, yeah, I'll just be in Fangoria this summer. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> I'm trying to get back up. I'm like, yeah, they have that coming up. I mean, it's exciting, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> uh, people can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at to be stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And, of course, there's new episodes of Horror Queers that come out every Wednesday, and you can find out more about that by following the show at Horror Queers. All right. Well, hey, uh, on behalf of Paul and myself, and Paul, you can definitely speak to it here in a second. I'm sorry I'm taking the entire closing of the show away from you, sir, but I will just say here, thank you both so much for being on the show. I had a blast chatting with you both, and uh, yeah, please come back sometime. We would love to have you back on. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks. Yeah, it was a pleasure. We were we were lucky to have both of you, and it was an awesome conversation. So Yeah, thank you. 
All right, Paul, I, I, are we here? Are we to the end of the episode? Do you, uh, we, we did it. We did we it. We did it. We did it. All right. Uh, do I, do I do the closing or do you want to do the closing? You do the closing. I trust I you. Like, I, I, I don't trust me. That's a thing. Uh, Joe, you missed it. Julianne was, uh, she, she heard me try the, uh, opening like three times. It was, uh, <laughs> terrible. You know, I'm probably going to cut all of this out too when I admitted That's that just fine. now. In oh, any if, you case, don't, if you don't flub a beginning or an end, it's like, are you even podcasting? That's such a good point. <laughs> such a good point. That makes me feel better. Okay. <clears throat> so here I go. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics. And I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time. Oh, I guess I did flub. Paul, where can folks find you at online? <laughs> That's fine. Nobody <laughs> wants to follow me online. Uh, I'm at Paul is great 2000 because I'm very modest. Um, and uh, yeah, you can follow me there and see all the stuff I'm doing and writing about. It'll be on my Twitter page. And if you like uh, what I had to say about Hammer, I have a column on Blade Disgusting called Hammer Factory, where I do all this, but I write it out in column form. I'm so excited. You're going to write this whole Frankenstein thing. We're going to lock you to room for a weekend with two bottles of Chardonnay and a couple of packs of cigarettes, <laughs> oh, I, right? I would do it. I would do it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I Yes, we need to make that happen. That would be fantastic. So, And yes, definitely anybody out there, if you have even a passing interest in Hammer, definitely check out Paul's column. It is essential reading. So, uh, okay, in any case, everyone, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I guess, folks, have a great weekend, and we will see you next time. Will we see you next time? Will we hear you next time? We don't even hear the people next time. They'll hear us. You know, this is a train wreck. I'm just going to cut right in the middle of this.